I understand. You know, I realize that record-breaking profits alone does not mean anything. It's you know all about growth. But it, <laughs> the most profitable quarter that any any corporation has ever had in the history of corporations, and mm-hmm. <laughs> the stock dived. Uh, and yes, I understand there are some reasons for that, but it's still there's <laughs> there's some hyperbole. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, some hysteria, I should say, hysteria involved. Um, and then in the aftermath of it, and you know, I, I don't know what's a leak and what's not, but you know, trying to to you know steer the narrative another way. Now that all the rumors come pop, piling out of the woodwork, you know, mm-hmm. about the bright rosy future that <laughs> right, yeah. that the, the comp- diverse and and very many varied interests of Apple, yeah, right. And one of them is that today it's all over the place. I forget who started it, but that Apple is has quietly put together like a two hundred person team working on on VR. Right. And the part that makes me roll my eyes is it of course there have people work a lot of people working on VR. Mm-hmm. Of, well, if the yep. only thing that would be shocking, what would be truly shocking and would be like to me cause for alarm would be if a report came out that said nobody within Apple is working on <laughs> right. VR or it's Apple just, has no plans for VR and it thinks <laughs> VR is trash. <laughs> it's just one guy named Dave who works on the <laughs> cinema display team. Who, right. <laughs> when you know, has... Dave thinks this VR thing is kind of cool. So yeah, it's like one guy named Dave who's sort of jury rigged something with a you know with a, one of those cardboard boxes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that would be shocking. The fact that they're that they're looking at this is <laughs> that this is treated as news. Really, really. Ugh. Yeah, actually, I think that was from the FT. Uh, um, I th- you know the the story itself was. None, as you mentioned, none too shocking. I mean, they're, right. they're, what they got going on there is there's a bunch of people working on VR. Apple takes it fairly seriously in terms of like, hey, we should explore this. And that's pretty standard. It's part of the course. Any major big technological kind of, you know, invention or 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 infusion of, of new tech into an industry, you've got to bet a corporation as big as Apple, doesn't matter what their philosophies are, they're going to at least experiment with it and play with it and see right. if it fits within their milieu, you know? Right, in the way that you could have written the same thing about touchscreens five, six, maybe even ten years before the iPhone came out. Mm-hmm. That yep. they were, you know, investigating it, trying to see if they could, you know, is there a product to be made out of this? Yeah, exactly. And uh, Tim Bradshaw had that report at the FT, and Tim is usually pretty well sourced and stuff. So I don't really doubt much uh, in his report. Um, but it, you're right in the fact that it's like everybody treats it as like a, like a uh, you know, a holy grail moment. And it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I can tell you that I think it was maybe three years ago that I first heard. Apple was sort of like hiring a few people in like the the games industry and graphics industries and sort of looking at VR, um, maybe maybe two years ago. And so I and I, you know, nothing more than scuttlebutt, so nothing really to report on. And you know, kudos to Tim for like getting a, a bunch of uh, triangulations on that. But I think it would be really silly to assume that they weren't working on it. it would, that would be the bigger thing. Yeah, and I'm not trying to say that uh, Tim Bradshaw's original report is the one that is saying that it's a shocker, but it's just the the mm-hmm. reaction, though, across the yeah, the, yeah. the web to it as 
wow, I thought Apple was done making new products. Uh, yeah, yes, yes. That, actually, that does seem to be the assumption in a lot of these stories. And you have to wonder, it, and not just VR, but every time, right? Like every time, oh, it's like a dual lens thing or, a, right. or the VR thing or, or whatever, or car thing. And it's like the assumption is always that you think the reader is stupid enough to believe that Apple was like done, that was it. You know what I mean for them. <laughs> they never, they're never going to release anything different than the iPhone ever again. You know, right? Uh, and the, the other part that so. gets me is the undercurrent, and nobody will qu- quite come out and say it because if they came out and said it point blank, it would sound stupid. But the mm-hmm. the way that they react though is when something like this comes out, and it's a a. I'm not going to say pie in the sky, but it's something that is almost certainly years in the future from being sure. actual product on the market. It's exciting and a sign that maybe Apple's best days are ahead of it. And then let's just say that like a, some kind of VR driven thing comes out from Apple in 2017 or 2018. Mm-hmm. And then it comes out and then it only sells like 2 million units in the first mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. And only quote unquote only makes, you know, four or five billion dollars in revenue in the first year well then it is a it's a dud it's not going to move the needle Mm -hmm. it's pointless it's a failure and let's move on to the next thing you know that when it's it it, it, it's a vague notion it's super exciting and then when it's an actual product it and and it isn't the biggest thing it since the iPhone, then it's mm-hmm. it's no good. And I, you yeah. see that all week long, in my opinion, with the reaction people have had to the watch, and, right. and, and Apple's you know quarterly right. finances and stuff like that. Yeah, and you may it it is more. I mean, anytime you get something, you get a concept that involves more gray and more complexities, it's going to be hard to either make it the narrative and it's going to be hard to convince people to want to buy into it because it's not as exciting, right? It's it's more about nuance you know it's talking to somebody about the difference between two different jazz singers not the difference between rock and roll and r&b or rock and roll and classical music or whatever you know there's more subtlety involved so if you get into a scenario where apple is a company that's made up of a bunch of really solid smaller businesses and one massive business nobody wants that they want apple to have another blockbuster business like the iphone to replace the iphone right you know and that's that's the narrative currently, anyway. Right, and it's it, there's nothing that can be done to dismiss it. Mm-mm. Um, I I am VR in particular is it's it's an interesting thing to think about from Apple's perspective or from someone who appreciates Apple's perspective because it could mean anything, mm-hmm. right? Like whereas mm-hmm. like Apple is building a car, that's pretty specific. It's. <laughs> We know what a car yeah. is, you know, it's a thing that you get. <laughs> and there's all sorts of, well, how are they going to charge the, you know, if, assuming it's an electric, how are they going to charge it and what kind of battery mm-hmm. technology they have. And there's all sorts of, you know, details to be worked out, but we still know right. what a car is. Whereas right. the idea of Apple getting involved with VR, it really could be any or all of a various different things. It could be something completely entertainment driven, like an mm-hmm. extension of Apple TV and it's for gaming and stuff like that. Um, right. And that's a lot of, you know, I don't know what you saw at Sundance, but I'm guessing at Sundance in particular, it's a lot of entertainment in some way. Uh, yeah, mostly, mostly entertainment stuff. There's some documentary stuff and, and um, a large, large majority of it is, is based around sort of three, um, 360 photography hmm. and not as much 3D environments yet. Right. Although I did play in some 3D environments. There are some studios making um, stories, you know, telling stories in 3D environments, 
um, which is a whole nother thing, the whole studio system or, or content uh, creation system for VR. But majority of it right now, all film-based, entertainment-based, yeah. Well, the other the thing that Apple could do that might be different than anything we've seen so far is this could be something that is meant for, you know, being like a display for the Mac. And it could be a way to get like, you know, some sort of heretofore science fictionist style super wide display that is right in front of you while you do your work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be. I mean, the VR, so VR, if you want to think about what Apple's going to do and, and how Apple might use VR, you have to sort of think about a VR in the macro for just a sec. And the macro v, VR right now, the macro for VR right now is you have two diverging pathways. You have the people that are really pushing the technology forward and doing the most advanced, craziest things you can think of. And those are the VR headsets that are hooked up to a powerful computer. You know, this is all the stories that came out about Oculus. Like, oh, sure, the Oculus is 600 bucks, but you have to have a $1,500 computer to run it, which is true. And those are the, that's like the gamer segment. You know, gamers, game, games and pornography have always driven technology forward, right? Like the internet, uh, computing power home video home, yeah home video exactly a lot of those things have really been driven off of um gamers and and pornography and that's you know it's neither here nor there i'm not making any value judgments on either one of those i'm just saying that's the reality of it so when you look at vr you look at pornography and gamers that is going to be driven usually probably at least the gaming segment by more powerful experiences driven by powerful computing devices a desktop computer essentially um, that is powering your you know big uh, complex virtual experience whatever that may be whether it's a game or a communal world where a bunch of people live in it like a, a snow crash type thing um, or whatever that's all that branch so that's really one school of thought one branch of exploration of vr the other half is the samsung gear vr right which is a, a, a headset that you snap a phone into and it becomes a vr headset right it's like a plastic shell and you with a couple lenses in it not much beyond the cardboard the google cardboard except that it's not made out of cardboard it's made out of plastic and you snap your phone into it, and it becomes a VR headset. And that mobile, mobile VR experience is much more a mass market product. Like, that's something you could, like, take on vacation, and that your kid plays with in the backseat or whatever, you know? And that, that kind of mass market VR is the other branch. And I feel that we won't really see anything from Apple that's consumer-focused until those branches converge. Until we have a mobile platform that has enough power to power fairly robust VR experiences that you can do without wires. Right. Because I just don't see an Apple headset with a bunch of wires connected to a big computer. That's just not, that's not the kind of company they are anymore. You know? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does make sense. Um, it's intriguing, though, to think about. Or I wonder if the... The route to get there without wires isn't necessarily – it would still involve having, um, I can only assume, the GPU in the headset. It's just mm -hmm. that waiting for like the you know A12 or A13 system on a chip where there's this insane graphics processor on a you know super low power, low weight, low heat mm -hmm. chip that it can also be sold at a very consumer-y sort of price. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and so the question is whether or not we see anything in between those two products from Apple, right? Right. Yeah, so we're, I mean, maybe they do release something where it is cabled and, and uh, you know, shows off what it can do. And it's like, well, this is V1 and then, you know, V2 may be, oh, look, there's no cable anymore or whatever. But, I mean, I think that the processor in, in the iPad Pro, if you can get that into a scenario where you have like a, you know, an 8-ounce battery or whatever that, that fits in a headset and can power that for four or five hours or six hours, I don't know. That seems like a pretty powerful little utility, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, you know, is it entertainment? Is it work? I don't know. It could be both. I don't know. But, mm-hmm. I've, you know, it's obviously a huge source of uh, what ifs, you know. Right. And I think I think a large portion of the VR industry is based off of what ifs at the moment because not only is there there are not enough consumer endpoints. I mean, the Oculus just shipped its its sort of like retail unit. And I mean, not shipped, but rather, but open pre-orders for, right. and it got you know thousands of pre-orders. But in, until that hits, there really is a very, very, very tiny amount of people that can even experiment with a, a decent VR headset. And that I mean, there's a long way to go before there are enough consumer endpoints for Apple to even consider you know kind of releasing a product in that field. I mean, everybody's got a wrist, like everybody needs a phone. You know what I mean? Like there's. There's just not that need in the VR yet, but. Uh, I wonder, I don't know. I, I, I feel like it, it's too hard to figure out what they're doing with it yet, but of course they're working on it. Mm-hmm. Could be interesting. It'd be, it'd be funny if it was, it occurred to me that it would be funny if it was part of the, uh, part of the car. Yeah. Yeah. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? And I mean, that, Honestly, augmented reality, which many people do lump in with virtual reality because it has some similar characteristics, um, is um, I think that's a given on the car. I, I I can't see how Apple releases a quote-unquote car of the future, according to Apple, uh, and doesn't include the ability to overlay information on your view. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. I mean, every, oh, there's car makers that have been doing versions of that for for almost a decade now or, or more with like your speed or like left turn, right turn, or even a traffic warning or whatever, you know, a HUD, like Mercedes does that, BMW does that on some of their cars. So imagine like a, a live map display that shows you exactly which turns to make overlaid on the street itself, you know, so it's not distracting. It maps one-to-one with the street. It's not something that you're looking at and then looking back at the street and then looking at your windshield and then back at right. the street, you know. Um, there's lots of really cool opportunities. I think if they would be crazy not to ship something like that together, you know. Yeah, and it's exactly the sort of thing that Apple uh, gets right. You know, I I think that it's. I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that that the future of turn by turn directions is a uh, uh, in the actual view you get out of the car, not mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. secondary. In the same way that part of the magic of the iPhone compared to the GUI computers that came before it was the d- direct manipulation. That there, you're not moving a pointer to click a button; you're just clicking the button with your finger. And yeah, that's the a same, good point. And and it, there's. It makes sense that that's better that it's, but I th- feel like the advantages of it aren't even in the way that it makes sense. They're in at like a lower level part of your brain that it's mm-hmm. so much cognitively unburdened because there's a level of abstraction that's gone. Same way that it'll be with 
whether it's directions or whatever else you want, like just show sure. me, you know, show me restaurants that are open and they highlight in the actual mm-hmm. field of view as you drive by them, stuff like that. Right. Or, or just a little indication that a place is open or closed at this at nine mm-hmm. o'clock as you drive by. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And one of the things I like to do when I think about possibilities like this, and this is really kind of silly, it's, just, it's a dumb device, but I like to seriously think like, could I imagine them announcing this on stage, right? Like, could I, how, how would I see them pitching it? And yeah, this is not, like, it's not hyper original or anything, but if you imagine somebody like, you know, Schiller on stage introducing the car, uh, and he goes, you know, and he's saying, like, look, you know, there are so many accidents caused by people looking down at their phones, texting and driving, or look, even just looking for directions. Even if it's something that's allowed by the state or federal governments, uh, we still know it's not safe, and yet we do it anyway because we have to. We feel we ha- we need the directions or we need the information. But now you don't have to. You know, right. now here's here's how we at Apple felt by working together with hardware and software <laughs> manufacturers and everything working as one big unit. Here's how it could improve your life, blah, 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 right? And it's just like, if you imagine that, it seems like an easy sell. It's like, yeah, I, they could sell that, you know? And uh, yeah, it seems silly not to think that that's a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I almost, I, I, I really do think, and it, and it comes to, it's an old Steve Jobs line, but that the whole argument about whether or not Anything in particular. I mean, he famously, he, I think he said this to the Dropbox kids, but, you know, is this a technology or is it a product? And, mm-hmm. you know, the other thing he's, he, you know, repeated it many times is that you, the only way he knows to make a great product is to start with the idea for the product and then work backwards and find the technology to make it realistic. Not to start with, wow, we've got this amazing technology. <laughs> right. Let's figure out a way to turn this into a product, which yeah. is to me, yeah. Where, and not to like put Oculus Rift down, but to me, Oculus Rift is that type of product at this mm-hmm. at this point. And I know they have great people working on it, and I know you know it, it that they could make that happen. And it's the sort of thing where maybe the technology itself is so standalone that it's in this case like with a display, which is effectively what it is. It's just a display. Maybe you can make that work. But with Apple, it's never going to be that way. And I could see that 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 the team that they have working isn't even working on one specific thing, but, you know, three, four, five different things. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think one of the reasons that Oculus sold to Facebook and that Facebook bought them and that was a mutually agreeable thing between them is that is they looked at it and they realized that, oh, shit, we're going to have to spend a bunch of money trying to get this platform, essentially hardware platform, up and running and out to people before we even start creating things on it. And so they, they thought, hmm, well, how can we remove the, the worry about having to fund in a very expensive hardware manufacturing phase uh, and then move right into what we think will actually be the money, which is the worlds, right? The things that you create on top of it. Because I, I talked to um, Brendan Uribe, who's um, the CEO of Oculus, and he, you know, he was a, it was very, um, involved in gaming for some time. Uh, he was involved in like Sony's, well, Sony bought it, but their PlayStation gaming streaming service and whatnot. So he's not, he's not a dummy. He knows that the, the, the services on top, so on top of VR are where people are going to make their money. And in terms of Oculus, they don't have to worry now about how are we going to sell these things at a, a affordable price point? Cause they even said that the Oculus rips as they are, 
they're selling them really close to cost, you know, for 600 bucks or whatever. And instead, they can get stuff out there and see what people build. And then, you know, those social experiences and games and whatever else that gets built on top of them, that's what will actually take off and be a thing. And yep. so right now, there's, it doesn't make any sense for anybody to go, oh, let's get into hardware unless they're already in the business of man manufacturing commodity hardware. Because that's what it is. You know, it's going to, you should be able to buy a VR headset for 50 bucks and put it in your bag and you'll be able to buy better ones that do, you know, better stuff and whatnot, but you should be able to buy one for 50 bucks, shove it in your bag and have it hook up to your, your mobile phone wirelessly and it'll be powered by an internal GPU and it'll transport you to whatever world you want mobile on a mobile basis. And until they're there and the content is there, nobody's going to make any money at it, you know? Yeah. Um, here's another rumor of the week, or at least rumor of the day, is is a story Bloomberg had today um, that <laughs> Apple is working on wireless charging. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I laugh again because... <laughs> Of course. Like since the dawn of time, right. <laughs> everybody has wanted to charge with the wires. <laughs> of course, they're working on wireless charging, and you know, mm -hmm. I guess the news the news angle of it is that, according to the story at Bloomberg, that it might be ready as early as twenty seventeen, right? Um, which is a little weird because it doesn't really match up with the TikTok schedule of iPhones, you know that. It seems more likely to me that it, if it doesn't happen this year in the iPhone 7, it's probably not going to happen until 2018 in the iPhone 8. Mm. On the mm. assumption that this year's iPhone 7 will be followed by the iPhone 7S next year. Mm -hmm. But maybe not, you know, in a way that like things like Touch ID appeared in an S year, um, you know, and that it, maybe the wireless charging wouldn't replace the lightning port. It would be just something that it just magically happens when you connect a wire, you know, something mm -hmm. on the back of the phone. So it's possible that it, it could happen in an S year. But overall, the the, <laughs> the basic idea, you know, it, it's great. I hope it happens. But I just can't mm -hmm. I, I just can't can't make my head understand the excited reaction that people have to this to this report. You know what I think it is? And I mean, I think this is partially a construct of the media, but it is something Apple has probably, you know, I, don't, I don't hesitate to use the word blame, but they have responsibility for. And that's that they do execute on things, right? So the, there's been wireless charging in Android phones for some time. This Qi wireless standard or whatever is, it's okay. And I have a couple Android phones that charge that way. And it yeah. does work. It works, works fine. You know, you put it on a little pad and it charges and whatnot. But it's not really wireless. You still have a pad with a wire attached. And the only thing you're doing is you're just not physically plugging it in, right? Yeah. So the execution of wireless charging in terms of oh i can stand near my charger and it when it charges or i can be you know within 10 feet of the charger and my phone will charge uh, it'll probably be much closer than that in reality but you know that that i think that execution thing is what gets people excited about apple and it's where i can sort of forgive people for going yes finally apple's gonna do it and it's because they know that if apple does it there's at least some i mean people bitch about the way that apple executes on stuff a lot right because they do claim a lot about their things. They claim things, the things they do are really good and awesome. And that's, that's their fault, I guess you, you'd call it. But 
people just expect the level of execution out of them. So when, when they hear that Apple's going to do X or Y, they're like, oh, this is going to probably be a really good X or Y. Well, and it's also human nature. It's actually easier to criticize something that's sort of in the uncanny valley between it's way definitely way better than a pile of shit, but mm-hmm. it's not great. Then it's really it's a lot easier to figure out exactly what's wrong. Right. And right. Um, and when a product is really truly just a garbage product, it's actually harder to say exactly what's wrong with it because it's you don't even know where to start. <laughs> right. I mean, it's right, really exactly. true. I mean, I know it sounds over and and Apple at their worst usually is the has a couple of glaring problems that stick out like sore th- thumbs, not the this yeah, is or really like just sore sore battery pack humps. Right. Like the <laughs> as an example of a product that I would consider total dog shit would be like the original um HTC Android phone from 2008. Mhm. Oh and, yeah, the the one, the and the one yeah. Android. What do you call it? The Nexus One. Yeah. And it was wasn't it brown? <laughs> I, I, I think no, it maybe was. I'm confusing. Either it. brown and gray, maybe. Or, I, don't I don't know. know. They had a but, couple of colors, but yeah. But it was it really just it, the only way it made any sense at all is if you knew as like a designer that mm-hmm. Android had started life, and until like the iPhone was unveiled a year before, it was sort of a BlackBerry style operating system yeah. with an up down left right input method. Mm-hmm. And without a touchscreen. And then they had this device that was like half and half, where right. all sorts of stuff like text editing all had to be done up, down, left, right. Right. And the, with no touch at all. And then other things they tried to glom on. It was it, it was so bad that it was hard to criticize. Yeah, in that context, you'd be like, hey, this is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> in comparison to what they had a year ago. <laughs> yeah. I do think, and there's a, a Daring Fireball reader, I forget who it is, uh, and I apologize if you listen to the show too, who sent me a really great note that I really appreciated that I was, I think when I linked to something a few weeks ago that was quote-unquote using wireless charging, um, took me to task for it because it wasn't wireless at all. And mm-hmm. as an example, so for example, Apple Watch does not charge wirelessly. Mm-hmm. You definitely need a wire, and it needs to be in physical contact. It just charges. It is a magnetic adapter. And if you actually look at Apple's marketing for the Apple Watch, Apple never claims that Apple Watch charges wirelessly. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not wireless. And, and, you know, for example, if your networking worked that way, (laughs) you would Mm -hmm. definitely not call it wireless networking. Like, if to get on your Wi-Fi, you had to magnetically connect your, your MacBook to your router... It right. might be better than plugging and unplugging in the uh, an Ethernet adapter. Mm-hmm. You know, magnetic would be better than that. But it's definitely not wireless. Wireless is like Wi-Fi, where yeah. if you're in the room, you've got the network. Like, right. and so if that is what Apple's working on for charging, that would be actually pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they. <laughs> There's a lot this kind of loaded topic this whole wireless charging thing because there's a lot of arguments about the physics, right? Right. Cuz like there's a lot of people that say the physics of it just doesn't make sense because of the power loss over distance and then also there's some, you know, some safe, basic safety concerns as well cuz you're sending a relatively high powered radio signal. Uh, to transmit this power, um, you know, this energy from your charging device to the phone. But there's a startup called UBeam, which um, is founded by this um, woman named Meredith Parity. And it's probably the poster child for a huge promise and like big, big attention spike. And everybody's thinking, hey, this is revolutionary if it actually ships this way. And then also the cross 
the cross section of people who are like, this is BS and how can this actually work? The physics don't work and whatnot, you know? And there's, there's lots of question marks until they actually ship a product. They're getting ready uh, this year to ship a, a case that supposedly will charge this way wirelessly. And so I think that'll be an interesting proof of concept. If that ships and they're able to prove that it does, then all of a sudden, you know, every manufacturer is going to have to have it built in. Yeah, and um, you know somebody will probably end up acquiring UBeam or whatever. And if Apple's working on it internally and they ship it, you know, sure as heck, Samsung or somebody will try to acquire UBeam so that they they can catch up on that front. Yeah, there's you know, it does sound good, too good to be true. I mean, but I, I, I struggled with the later physics courses in college, so I I, I really don't want to pass judgment on. on yeah, those the basic yeah. layman's argument that you laid out that this is not physically possible or not within you know a reasonable mm-hmm. degree of uh efficiency uh, makes sense to me but on mm-hmm. the other hand you know i don't know wi-fi honestly still doesn't make much sense to me <laughs> that it works <laughs> yeah, right wi-fi yeah, yeah, there's exactly like ethernet i totally understand how ethernet works and right. and you know the whole idea that as many people as can get on a wi-fi network can get on a wi-fi network mm-hmm. and that it all works and everybody gets the right packets it's, right. It still seems a little too good to be true to me. So <laughs> if they could make Wi-Fi work starting in the late 90s, I don't know. Maybe wireless charging, you know, I'm not ruling it out. Yeah, it'll be like a, the gods must be crazy moment. Like, you know, the soda can fall from the sky and everybody will just be like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, everything has to have this. I mean, I, I'm the same way. I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know, Jack, about the physics of it. I just talk to smart people and that's what they tell me. Um, so it'll be, it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens when and if it, ships and it works because i think it'll be a that's probably going to be a watershed moment for a lot of technology because think about all the technologies that would work pretty great if you had a continuous source of power um that was not attached by a wire uh, and that and that battery you know is not enough to support so it's just the beginning of a lot of really cool technologies if if that's the case because like let's say you could stand within 20 feet of your car and it would charge every, all your electronic devices you had on you, you know, yeah, yeah. um, lots of interesting possibilities there. So I'm excited yeah. about it, but cautiously optimistic is the, the right phrase, I think. For me. Right. All you have to do is get in your car and mm-hmm. your phone and watch are already charging. Right. Right. You didn't do anything. You just got in and turned on the car and started going to work. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, what do I want to listen to? And maybe that's the only thing you're paying attention to because the car can drive itself. Uh, and you're just trying to figure out what you, how you want to entertain yourself on the way. And right. in the meantime, you're without having to worry about it, you're watching phone or charging. It's a heck yeah. of a way. It's yeah. an interesting – it's also a very interesting way for Apple to get from the, hey, one day of battery life kind of sucks for the watch uh, <laughs> to, to a couple of days of battery life uh, without – really changing the the basic nature of batteries mm-hmm. because it's really more about making it so much easier and convenient to sort of trickle charge throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And a nice way to sidestep the whole, because speaking of physics, right now there are a couple of physics problems that are essentially preventing any progress in the battery department. Like every company is spending millions or billions of dollars if they have them, you know, every big electronics company to try and figure out the battery issue, right? The problem of 
uh, how the capacity and longevity of batteries. Um, but nobody's really able to make any huge progress because there are some physics problems that have not been solved yet. And everybody's trying to figure out what materials to use and like carbon nanotubes and, you know, all kinds of other um, mechanics that try to make batteries better. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's not much you can do right now until somebody figures out that some crack or hole in the world is is there that wasn't there before and figures out how to either create a new material or put materials to work uh, in a new way. So it, if you can charge it, just like Apple's been doing with uh, processor optimization and chip optimization for years, they've essentially been sidestepping this thing, you know, kind of by making their stuff more efficient. Um, it's a similar kind of thing. So maybe we can't break through batteries, but we can charge them constantly throughout the day. Yeah, I do think I that's that's the main thing I take away from it, that that's sort of a big goal for the next 10 years. Um, let me take a break and thank our first sponsor. It's um, our good friends at audible.com. Uh, this, these are the guys, they're the audiobook people. They have over 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. And you can get a 30-day trial, free trial, at audible.com slash talk show. Um, if you want to listen to it, Audible has it. They have audiobooks from virtually every genre. And you can get them anytime, anywhere. Uh, and you can listen to them on your phone, your tablet, your computer. Most Kindles support it now. Uh, even iPods, you can just sync them over the old-fashioned way and just have the audio files right there on your iPod. They're great audiobooks. If you're listening to it, I think this is why they sponsor podcasts. If you're listening to podcasts, you know the advantage of having long-form um, spoken word audio content. Audiobooks are a great way to add to the playlist, the listening, you know, what you have queued up for your commutes or your flights, road trips, Um I know for a fact, just I, I, without even doing any kind of research, I know tons and tons and tons of you who are listening to my voice right now are doing it on your daily commute. And I know from how often you email me about maybe trying to get more episodes of the talk show out than I do, that you need more content. Well, audiobooks are a great way to do that. Uh, a lot of them these days are actually read by the authors themselves. It brings an extra dimension to the text. Um, and when you sign up as an Audible um, customer and you have a subscription, you can take risks and try new authors without regret because they have this great listen guarantee. If you start an audiobook and you don't like it, you can exchange it for another one for free. So see and listen for yourself. When you begin your free 30-day trial, you get your first audiobook for free, and there's no stress, no obligation. You can cancel your membership at any time. Uh, so once again, go get that free trial at audible.com slash talk show. Usually they ask for like a recommendation. I'll give you a recommendation. I'll tell you a book I just finished, uh, and they do have it on audiobook. It's uh, Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Tower, which is uh, it's a book I, I've read. I have like Philip K. Dick is one of those guys who I've been a fan of since I was a teenager, but never like finished reading everything he had written. Um, and I remember I had a friend in college who swore up and down that the the best Philip K. Dick book ever written was The Man in the High Tower. And it was like the high praise for that book that made me file it away. It's like sometimes I'm stupid like that. And I, there's books that I really want to read that I, if I'm really looking forward to it, I save it. And then, you know, eventually I'm going to die and <laughs> have those books go unread. <laughs> the basic gist of The Man in the High Tower is what if, uh, what if the United States had never gotten involved with World War II and Germany and Japan had won and then carved up uh, – 
a more or less defenseless United States that woke up too late to the threat. Uh, takes place like in the early 60s. And what pushed me to read it is that uh, uh, I was about to say Netflix, but it's Amazon came out with a TV series based on it. And I wanted to read the book before I watched the, the show. And so I did. And it was fantastic. Um, so if you want a recommendation, I would say get the uh, get the audio book for The Man in the High Tower. Did you ever read that? No, I haven't read it. I uh, I know of it. I've read other Philip K. Dick stuff, but not that. So I'll put that on my um, deathbed list. Yeah. <laughs> then I watched episode one of the Amazon show, and I didn't like it at all. <laughs> You're like, well, maybe I shouldn't read this book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I, I, but maybe I, I have to give it – I'll give it another episode or two just to see. But I I thought that it was – it just wasn't what I what I liked about the book. But we'll see. Uh, so what else? What else is going on? Uh, I don't know. Um, lots going on right now. I mean, I think that there's um, this little... Right now is sort of like a stretch of time where it's earnings report after earnings report. You know, all the Q1 yeah. stuff. Like everybody figures out how all the, the big companies did in uh, in Q4 or fiscal Q1, right. whatever you want to call it. And then... Um, after this, it starts like people start announcing stuff again. You know, yeah. they kind of want to get their wave off of how they did, if they did good or whatever. Facebook announced an enormous, just an absolutely blockbuster quarter. Yeah, and every you know, and it, just everybody seems unanimous to agree that that was about as good as good as quarter as Facebook could have announced. That in terms mm-hmm. of any metric that they're that they're tracking revenue and profit and active users, whatever else, that it's mm-hmm. just great. Mm-hmm. Seems to be a very well-run company. Yeah, I think so. I don't, I don't think they, I think they know what their core competencies are now uh, and, and are executing on those really well. I think Facebook is one of those companies that like almost everything it did during 2015 just worked. Like they, I mean, they had a few things here and there where apps, like individual spin-off apps that they released, maybe didn't you know set the world on fire or anything, but they were still interesting experiments. And it's just almost everything they tried to do, they did a really, really good job with. Um, I mean, if they they had like a during I don't know if you saw, but during like the the um, problem in France, uh, the terrorist attack in France, they had this sort of safety check. Yeah. Um, feature they launched. And that's indicative of something that only makes sense for a platform on Facebook scale. Like you literally say, hey, is your family member okay? And of course they can check in on Facebook because of course they have an account. You know? I mean, with there's 1.59 billion people on Facebook every month. That's just every month, right? So maybe somebody has an account but doesn't go and check in every month. It's, in, it's probably in the several billions that have an account. So if you see that there's a terrorist attack and you go, you know, I don't really log on on my Facebook, but I'm going to go on there and see if anybody's okay. You can see that safety check thing and see that your loved one or friend has checked in safe. I mean, that's a pretty impressive thing to A, roll out and, and execute well, but also the fact that they can even do it at all, that it's feasible for them to do so. You know, it speaks to the, how enormous that platform is and how well they've executed. Um. I think it's crazy, though. And again, I don't want to make this an invest investor hour. <laughs> yeah, <fun>. yeah. <laughs> but I, I like thinking about, and especially, I think you're right that the the, the holiday quarter, uh, both for especially for Apple, but for everybody, mm-hmm. is sort of like 
the biggest one because it's sort of the referendum on the, the calendar year coming to a close. Mm-hmm. Um, I the fact that Facebook is trading at a price to earnings ratio of 109 <laughs> is to me. And again, I'm not an, an expert. I it just says to me maybe people are a little too excited about Facebook and, mm-hmm. and where they're going. Maybe not. Maybe not. But it's that's a pretty high PE ratio. Because mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. quite sure if they've already got 1.5 billion active mm-hmm. users. There's not there's not a lot of upside there in terms of how many more people they can get using it. Yeah, because their delta is the amount of people that have access to the internet versus how many people are already on Facebook, right? That's their growth delta. Right. And it's that's not huge. It's there, but it's not all 8 billion. You know, all 8 billion people are not on, not on Facebook. So they're... <laughs> this is almost funny, but it's like... It's almost if you could spool it out a little bit further, it would get really dystopian because Facebook's growth strategy currently is not get more people on Facebook. It's get more people on the Internet. Right. Which is pretty crazy when you think about it, because it's like clone people or birth people that can use our product. Right. Right. That's essentially their their strategy. It's like if. You know, Apple said, oh, well, we're going to create breeding farms that breed people who can use buy more iPhones if they choose. Yeah, you know? I, I've thought about this, too, <laughs> that it's it's sort of like that. And Google is in a similar situation where Google is is similarly a part of their growth strategy is to get more people on the Internet. And that's mm-hmm. why you see companies like Facebook and Google launching these these programs like um like Google had the one where they had internet wireless internet routers connected to balloons. I, I think they still have it. Mm-hmm. I don't think they've stopped it, but that they're going to launch balloons around the world that you know rain wireless networking down into areas that 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 don't have good internet access. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's one of those things that you know just to sort of circle back to the magic of Wi-Fi that wireless solves that problem in a way that wired networking never would, you know, and mm-hmm. that trying to get people when, when most of the Western world was first connected, you know, in a communications network, it was the phone network. And the way that we did it was by literally stringing copper wire in and out of every room in every building, in every mm-hmm. house across multiple continents, which is not cost effective, you know, like, as much as it sounds like a science fiction idea to have these balloons floating over Africa that that give people wireless networking, it's it's actually just just look at the back of the envelope. It's a lot seems a lot easier and a lot more financially feasible than stringing cable to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But again, it's in their own interest, like you said. Really, that it's getting more people on the internet is the only way that they can grow. And and the the point I'm getting to is that this the strategy is sort of it's sort of like the Catholic Church. Like you need to have a lot of babies. <laughs> yeah, how do we spread the religion? Have six or more babies. We need that we need <laughs> you to have as many children as possible so that they can be Facebook and Google users twelve and thirteen years from now. <laughs> yeah, make some new Catholics. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Oh man. I don't know. I mean I think that there's there's plenty of opportunity there for people to do interesting things with big, big networks that are, are really exciting. But then you also, the other side of it, the other half of it is Facebook is their conduit to the internet, right? And so Facebook is not a nonprofit, right? They're not a, 
uh, an entity that has no interests. And it's not, you know, that's not a fault of theirs. It just is what it is, right? So they have a definite desire to get people on the internet so that more people can use Facebook. But those people that come on the internet are going to come into an internet that is hosted and, and absorbed by um, Facebook. And I got to worry about that. You know, you got to think like, man, I wonder what, how that could distort their view of the world. I mean, people already talk about Facebook's newsfeed and how it presents certain things or doesn't present other things to its users which is a completely valid concern. And, you know, hey, Facebook is probably trying to do its best to make more people use it, and that's fine. But at the same time, you know, what's the deal? Like, right. are we going to get a view of the world, the, the developing world is going to get a view of the larger world that it's connected to through Facebook's lens? And is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It's probably somewhere in between. It's just a thing, but it's sort of a creepy thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's a question I got from a, a Daring Fireball reader. I'll just read it. I'm not going to mention it. I think it's a reasonable question. I, I think it's the wrong way to think about it, so I'm not going to use his name because, it, you know, but it's, here's the question I got. This is uh, two days ago. Do you think Apple's decision not to get into the social space will turn out to be a mistake? Facebook stock is up 12% today. There are 1 billion iOS devices. At the very least, why not an Instagram competitor? They're already storing the photos. It seems like a no-brainer to me. If nothing else, they could slow down Facebook's growth a bit. Tim Cook didn't sound good yesterday. Can you only imagine the stress he's under? Um, and here's what I wrote back real quickly. But I really, I, I think it's true. I think the worst thing Apple could do is chase after ideas just because they're profitable. That's the sort of thinking that led Microsoft astray. Mm -hmm. To me, this was Microsoft at, in its heyday, like circa the mid-1990s, was they were making all this money and they had all this engineering talent and everything was that was happening was happening on Windows computers. Um, and that they would look at any idea that anybody came up with that gained any sort of traction, whether it was financial or just interest. Because, you know, like Net Netscape, for example, wasn't really making a lot of money, but they were gaining tons of users and had all this attention. And anybody who had anything, Microsoft would look at it and say, well, we got to get into that too. And then they, mm -hmm. they did. And I feel like that's a terrible way to run a company. Um, because it's, it's it, it, and it's sort of, to me, it's the opposite of the way Apple has always, has achieved the success that they've had, which is to be very, you know, pick and choose the things where they can make a difference and where they, they really want to be. Like, so it has Apple directly profited from the rise of social networking. No, really. I mean, the only thing that they ever really tried was ping, and they, their heart wasn't really in that. That was just a way to try to sell more music. Um, and but on the like sort of secondary level, they've profited greatly because people have social networking is a huge reason why people want to carry cell phones, smartphones with them everywhere mm -hmm. they go, and take them out of their pocket whenever they have a few minutes. Um, it's the fact that people are doing so much on Facebook throughout the day on their phones and doing Instagram on their phones or doing Twitter from their phones um, that they care so much about their iPhone that mm -hmm. Apple benefit, you know, there is, it's, you know, they don't get to, um, you know, their stock doesn't go up just because more people are using Facebook, but at some level, part of the iPhone success and therefore part of Apple's success is the success of things and popularity and the way that everybody, I mean, just 
uh, you know, regular normal people have taken to these networks like fish to water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there is an argument that if they are going to invest in anything, like you took you, you think about their statements, their repeated statements that it's important that they own their technology, right? Right. Um, to a degree, owning your technology these days doesn't just mean owning the bits of hardware that go into it. It means, of course, the software stack too, right? And the software stack includes the underpinnings, but also the things that run on it, right? So the things that run it, but also the things that run on it. So Apple goes, hey, you know, we made this great thing. We're going to get developers to build great apps, or we're going to encourage them to build great apps, and they're going to build amazing apps. And they have benefited significantly from that. So then you have to go, well, at some point, Apple's got to go, these particular segments and categories of apps are so popular and so important to the iPhone's success. Like, you know, you look at the, <laughs> you can look at the battery indicator um, on your phone, you know, the, the little new little thing in iOS that tells you how much battery each app is using. Right. And you can get, a, unless some app is acting naughty, you get basically a cross section of what's important to you, like which apps are important to you and which ones you use your phones for, you, your phone for. And that kind of gives you the heads up of like, oh, these are the things that are most important to me. This is what, this is how I use my iPhone. And so I'm sure Apple has all those statistics as well. So they know exactly what people are using their phones for the most. So then you have to say, hmm, I wonder if at some point they go, people use their phones 60% of the time for messaging. You know, why why are we not building iMessage out into a true messaging platform? You know, and they have done some of that. They have done a little bit of that. But then you go, well, why isn't it a social network? You know, why isn't iMessage a social network? I guarantee you top battery usage is probably Twitter and Facebook on many people's phones, right? Or right. Twitter or Facebook or Twitter and Facebook. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a definite, definite thought process that you could see churning there where it's like, yes, we don't like to split our, spread ourselves too thin. But if we were going to take on a project, wouldn't the things that people use their phone for the most and second most be something that we might be interested in, you know? Yeah. My guess is that in the aggregate, if you looked at everybody who's used an iPhone in the last month, um, my guess is Facebook would be in the top spot the most time, more than any other app. Mm -hmm. Uh my guess from number two and three, it's hard to say because I don't know. Like Facebook's the one where you just know that there's that many people using it. Mm -hmm. Where Twitter would be, I don't know. I guess it's up there, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's not even close, if it's not number two. And I'll guess, I would guess the other app that for some people has got to be way up there is Mail. Mm. Mm -hmm. And obviously that brands you, <laughs> brands you as an old person, or, you know, or <laughs> right. a work person, but people, you know, uh, for people whose jobs largely revolve around email or where email is a primary part of it, boy, mail can really suck up the time on your phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you're, I think you're right in that you're going to get like a demographic slice. Like there's going to be some things that certain people use a significant amount and then other people don't. Like if, my, if, I'm, if I go into mine, let me go in here. I'm just going to look at mine. Um, so if I go to, where's this damn thing? Uh, they keep moving around. Yeah. Battery. It's first level, but it's in the third group battery. 
Oh, there it is. Okay. So, yeah, if I could look at my top list here, wait for it to refresh. So, it's phone. <laughs> because I have a lot of conference calls. Wow. That I, I actually am laughing because I literally did not expect it to be everyone. That's really funny. So, phone is my number one. And I'm guessing that's because I just spend an enormous amount of time on the phone talking to people, uh, either in meetings or sources and that sort of thing. Um, and I've also been doing a lot of um, work, kind of doing some hiring right now, so I've been talking to a lot of potential hires. So I'll just chalk that up to abnormal, because I don't think it's usually number one. But then number two is Twitter. Number three is Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. Number four is mail. Then home and lock screen, messages, Slack, Safari, and then it kind of dwindles down to below 1% for the rest of them. Yeah, mine, so, mine for the last 24 hours, TweetBot is 65%, Mail, 8%, Safari, 6%, and Message is 4%. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling we're kind of boring. Like, I think yeah. a lot of people's would be Snapchat. Like, I think Snapchat would be up there. Yeah, here's, here's my seven days. It's probably more accurate. TweetBot, 49%, Safari, 21%, Mail, 7%, Slack, 3%, Messages, 3%, Phone, 3%. Yeah. Everything else sort of dwindles off from there. Now, my tweet bot is super high because I really, that's really just the majority of what I do is I'm mm-hmm. either reading the actual tweets or, um, especially now that they have this Safari view controller, when I find a link to read, I read it right there in tweet bot. So it's mm-hmm. really misleading. Like, I think if you could separate my tweet bot when I'm actually reading tweets versus tweet bot when I'm reading a web view, it would be very different. Like, mm-hmm. and it's not any kind of indication in my personal experience that tweetbot is a, a egregious battery user it's really that my it's just my by so far and away the most used app on my phone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and i think that those you look at those opportunities and apple probably looks at that data as well and then they they go hey you know should we be in this particular area and i think that usually usually the decisions are probably made by can we 10x this Right, and if they can't ten exit, if they can't do something ten times better, then they just leave it alone and be yeah. like, "Well, we're you know we'll make the best platform we can for this particular use case, and let somebody else build it." Yeah, I, that to me is the sweet spot of where Apple's opportunities for future growth are, or just maintaining the thing they have now is to make sure that the platform is the place where the next thing is going to be built, as opposed mm-hmm. to trying to build that next thing themselves. Right, and if you spend too much time trying to build the thing, then you end up sending a signal to people who could potentially build some random thing you haven't heard of, right? Right. That that is super successful, like Snapchat, for instance, or whatever. Right. You kill that desire for them to innovate on your platform because you're sending them a signal like, oh, we're going to subsume you at some point, or we think we can do this better, so we're not going to offer you the best tools. And that's always a danger with Apple, because they do have native apps as well and native functionality. And so they have to balance the needs, their own needs, versus the needs of the developer so that they're signaling properly that this is a a hospitable hospitable environment for people that want to build new things. And, um, yeah, that's important. It's important for any big platform, which is why I think people were so kind of pissed at Facebook this week with the whole parse thing. So, All right. Well, let's, we should talk about that, I guess. I don't know, I don't know enough about it, the, the developer details of it, but more or less, well, maybe you should explain it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm nobody's parse engineer either, but I, I do, it basically is a... Um, a back-end service that allows people to spin up mobile apps and 
utilized its services for the backside of the app, uh, all of the database handling and right. a very variety of other things, so they can build UI and concentrate on overall user experience without having to build all of the infrastructure themselves. Um, this was essentially a kind of a buy that Facebook made. Facebook acquired them for, I think, like $38 million or something uh, a couple of years ago. And they acquired them at a time when their stock was kind of hurting. They were hedging their bets because they weren't doing well on mobile ads. They weren't converting well um, their users well to to um, mobile ads or revenue to mobile ads, which now, by the way, they are at like something like 80% uh, right. of their revenue comes from mobile ads, which is insane. Um, but they they were hedging bets. And so they thought... We need a service like Amazon has with AWS where we can be like the service provider for all of these other apps if we don't, if we don't end up being an, uh, a consumer-facing success with our revenue. We'll have this other source of revenue to back it up, you know, because they could see the writing on the wall finally that, you know, everybody's going to mobile, people want native, and their ads weren't converting well, so this was a sort of hedge thing for them. Um, and then I guess they figured, I mean, from what I've heard, all they, all they looked at was like not a lot of people were using it. They could do without it, so they shut it down. But it did send a lot of signals to people who develop on Facebook that if Facebook doesn't feel like they need it, you know, it's going away and you're going to be stuck in the lurch if a large portion of your app was built using this, you know, tool that Facebook acquired or maintained, um, which is a danger, I think. Right, and the whole appeal of something like this is look you you know this way you could keep your team small focus on what it is your app actually does mostly you know think about the app itself as opposed to having to worry about the back end and all this back end engineering um you'll get your thing built faster you'll be able to parlay off our expertise at keeping these back end services up and running with a very you know high performance high reliability um mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, now the one thing that I have seen a lot of people say about Parse is that, it, okay, it sucks that Facebook is shutting it down, but that when Facebook shuts one something like this down, they do it better than anybody else. And I think they've, mm -hmm. I think it's like a year from now when they've said yeah, that. one year, mm -hmm. which you know isn't good news to anybody out there who wasn't, you know, whose plans for their app that is currently using it didn't have any kind of allocation for let's spend seven months rewriting the back end mm -hmm. um, in 2016. And now all of a sudden that's sort of, they have to, but it's a heck of a lot better than it's going away April 1st or something like that, which mm -hmm. is how some of these things go down. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, well, actually a lot of recently, a lot of um, web services, there's been a, a variety of them run by the giants that have decided that they're no longer, you know, necessary and they're, they're shut down within a couple of weeks, man, like, you know, really quickly. And it's, uh, it makes people jumpy. I mean, there's, <laughs> it makes developers I talk to really, really, really jumpy. Like, why should we use any of this stuff? You know, if, uh, if we don't know where it's going to be. So anyhow, I mean, the long, the long, the roundabout route there was Facebook has to deal with very similar issues to Apple when it comes to creating a hospitable environment, because I think you're absolutely correct in that, you know, a lot of Apple's continued success is based on them being hospitable to the next big thing and then their platform being welcoming and, and um, you know, people seeing it as a desirable place to be. Uh, and so far, they're good there. But, you know, you can't, you can't count on that being forever because that's when you end up in trouble and, and uh, end, up, end up slipping. Yeah. Um, what did you think of, like, I thought that, 
the Apple's whole earnings, like the phone call especially, was it was weird. I thought because and it's because it was inevitably weird because I think Apple knew exactly how well the news and numbers they had were going to play out, which was mm-hmm. not well. But on the other hand, they're not going to it. it I, the spin on it is was a very tricky dance because they're not going to sit there and apologize for having right. the most profitable, <laughs> the best quarter of any company ever, yeah. right? A, a record <laughs> for themselves, uh, and the most profit of uh, any company that anybody's ever had, and a reasonably, you know, part of the spin was the very, very reasonable to me argument that a big part of the reason why it was almost flat year over year. Um, was the currency exchange problems that they mm-hmm. had around the world, and that with right. the you know incredible amount of sales they have now, that there's you know definitely not a U- U.S. only company like they used to be in the old days. That they sell tons throughout Europe, and China is this huge growing market, and Japan is a mm-hmm. big market. Uh, but that basically the dollar, U.S. dollar, is so strong that they. You know they've had to raise prices around the world just to try to keep even, and that they lost somewhere around eight billion dollars in currency exchange for the quarter. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it's you know let's face it, they're making excuses for you know they're, they're trying to put it in the best possible light. The other thing that they came up with, uh, and it's interesting. I'm not saying that it's pointless. I'm not saying it's an empty number, but it's. I'm curious about what you think about it because I'm still not sure. Is they came up with this new number, monthly active devices, mm-hmm. and that they said that um, you know that from the tracking that they can do of you know when you opt into hey will you allow Apple to you know see you know what you're doing on your device that they're they now estimate that there's one billion active devices iPhones mm-hmm. iPads Macs I, I guess watches get counted in that. Um, that's not a billion people. It's clearly they're emphasizing, you know, that it's devices and that an awful lot of, you know, the company's success is the fact that there are people like like the people who listen to the show who have an iPhone, an iPad, and a Mac, or maybe two Macs. Mm-hmm. Um, so a billion devices is definitely not a billion people. Um, but it's an interesting number nonetheless compared to the number of people in the world, which is what, like around 7 billion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what to make of it either. I mean, I think it's, I think it's definitely a more accurate number than number of devices sold total, or not more accurate, but more interesting, right? Because um, the number of devices sold does not include, of course, devices that have been put into a um, a drawer and and you know ignored or whatever. So they're signaling that this is how many people. This is your addressable market. That's the signal, right? So the signal to anybody in the Apple ecosystem and the signal to any investor is, uh, you know, that wants to buy Apple stock or whatever is that this is their addressable market. And that addressable market has two sort of um, components. One, accessory makers, app developers, anybody in the external ecosystem um, can look at that and go, oh, well, this is how many people we can hope to sell to directly. And then the other aspect of it is is that Apple says is saying these this is how many people we can sell anything new we make to, right? These are the people that are actively already using it. 
that are have bought into the Apple way of of doing things and are willing to to buy the things that we make. Uh, and that is a growth signal, and that's the kind of thing that they're trying to counteract is this feeling that Apple can't grow anymore, right? That, that it doesn't have any room to grow. That and that is to me that's exactly why they've introduced this number. I mean, part of it is that they it hit the nice even one billion, so it makes it like it's somewhat adds to the. Here's why we're going to bring this up, but if they mm -hmm. track this every quarter, it's a way to show growth that takes into account the fact that people buy a lot of Apple's products and use them until they break, which mm -hmm. to me is a large part of the why are the iPad numbers lower than they were at the in its heyday and i mm -hmm. really do and a lot of this is based on just the anecdotal evidence of what i see in the people in my extended family doing with their ipads which is using them until they break mm -hmm. and that's when they go to buy another ipad because all of the things that they bought the ipad for um you know we can focus on all the new features like retina displays and touch id um and the pen the pencil for the ipad pro or whatever um Whereas everybody I know, you know, bought it to do email and play Candy Crush and watch videos <laughs> or, you know, a lot of people, you know, my age, you know, my generation who have kids to, to have it to give to kids to watch videos and stuff like that on. Um, no matter which iPad you have, it's it if it still is working, it still does all of those things as good as it did when it started. And I really mm -hmm. feel like this monthly active device thing is a number that can keep should keep growing even in a quarter where the year-over-year -year number of iPhones sold is not showing a lot of growth. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense because they can say, look, you know, people are keeping them, but they're still using them. You know, so even if we didn't sell quite as many, there's still a ton of devices on our platform. So when those do break, we're going to get those sales and that sort of thing. So it's a recurring revenue versus a new revenue thing. But see, the Wall Street is really obsessed with growth, right? They base, right. The, they base their stock uh, prices on future revenue, not current. You know, like, congrats, you did amazing, but we don't care. Like, that's their attitude, right? And it's like, what could you do for me in the future, not what have you done for me? Um, and that's just the nature of the beast. You know, that's the way it works. So I think that Apple's going to have a very interesting story to tell because this this is one of those really funny i guess it depends on who you who you are whether it's funny or not but it's sort of funny in a in a really macabre way to me but apple actually looks less valuable to wall street because its products are built better and work better and aren't don't need to be replaced as much because they are still quite functional even even several generations down the line Whereas, you know, one, one generation or two, you know, an Android device is usually, unless it's a really, really well-built one, is disposable, you know, uh, and that's being generous. So I think that it's, it's a funny situation where it's like, oh, your company is not worth as much because you build your products too well. And I find that really, really amusing, but I'm sure Apple doesn't find it as amusing. No, I don't think so either. And if you really think about it deeply, it's, it, it really is, it's the conflict of short-term interest, which Wall Street infamously is focused on, hyper-focused on, is what do you do, you know, just looking three months ahead at a time, three months, three months, mm -hmm. three months, as opposed to looking, 
you know, at years or even decades of building loyal customer relationships. Um, building iPhones that are reliable enough and wear and tear well enough um, that people can maybe extend the two-year th- cycle and maybe only buy every three or four years and have reasonably good experiences right up until the end when they do it is great for the customer relation between Apple and I, and their customers where their customers thinking I'm getting great value for this because look I bought this three or four years ago and I'm now only mm-hmm. replacing it now and it's not great if you're looking for <laughs> record breaking quarter after quarter after no quarter. right <laughs> yeah uh, it's it's a sicky, sucky situation to be in which is maybe why we're seeing these new metrics and seeing some dances um, with uh, with those numbers I mean the I was I was laughing because um, before the I mean when the before the call when because the, the the earnings drop um, Several minutes before the call, about thirty minutes before the call, usually, and you'll get a um, you get some time to kind of pour over the numbers and you know publish whatever you want to about the basic numbers of the situation. Um, but during that space, uh, we noticed that somebody tweeted it at me, and I can't remember who. I apologize at this moment, but um, they said it was the first time that they can remember seeing supplemental materials attached to the report that were specifically about currency headwinds, yeah. about foreign exchange and problems, and. And that is, I mean, it's true. They've mentioned Forex for several years now as a major factor in why their profits haven't looked quite as good. Um, because, you know, they're, they're, essentially what they said is like $100 today or eighty hundred dollars in 2014 is $85 today. So that's a significant portion. You know, I mean, it's an enormous chunk of, of money that just disappears, of profit that disappears for them. But I laugh because, like, they started the call and and it was less it was two sentences in and they mentioned currency headwinds as a as a factor so it's a huge deal for them because those numbers those growth numbers are what they can base future growth on and people go yeah yeah but it doesn't matter to apple they have so much cash in a bank and blah 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 and that is true like to to a large degree i mean apple does not really care about what Wall Street values its stock at in general. And that isn't really the CEO's job. Is It's not to maximize the stock price, although lots of people think that is. It's not actually true. And the, the thing, the factor, the big issue with that happening is not the immediate, oh, Apple's in trouble with Wall Street, you know, neener, neener. It's Apple's hiring and retention of employees is largely based on stock. Because Apple does not pay very well. I mean, they pay well. I shouldn't say that. That's unfair. They pay fairly, but they don't pay exorbitant sums. It's not like commensurate. You know. the, Apple's average salary is not commensurate to Apple's corporate average profits, Correct. which are Correct. extraordinary. Apple's profits yes. are truly extraordinary. They are literally the most profitable company right now. I mean, who knows how long that'll last, but at the moment, they're the most profitable com- company in the world. Their average salary to engineers and regular talent is is not. Correct. And so that compensation, that additional compensation, whatever you want to call it, has to come from the stock. So people, they go, hey, you know, here's a, a very you know, uh, nice, maybe even better than average stock compensation uh, plan for you to offset the fact that we don't pay crazy Google engineer um, rates, you know? And that, I think, is it's going to hurt them 
So that's why they care so much about this stuff and why they're trying to communicate so much to – besides the fact that, yeah, of course, you want to have a good earnings report. You know, and They're not saying, forget the stock. Who cares? It's just that's the most important thing to them because Apple faces an enormous amount of competition against – the, I mean, up until what was very recently an extremely favorable funding in, environment, and it's still much better than it has been in years and years. So an engineer, a talented one, says, hey, why don't I just become a technical founder of my own company and, and build it or scale it to whatever and sell it for, for millions or whatever the case? Why should I go work to Apple or go, go to work at Apple instead? Well, why don't I just start my own company? Or why don't I go to one of these companies that are offering just an insane retention or acquisition package for engineers because they absolutely must have engineers. You know, it's one of the most competitive hiring environments in in the history of ever for engineers. So that's going to hurt their ability to hire and retain. And that's, that's I think, the big reason they're trying to, to um, communicate this, these growth, this growth potential to, to Wall Street in such an aggressive way. Yeah, I I definitely agree, and it does. I think I I think that that is the the connection to retention and attention of existing talent and attracting the new talent that they need. It's absolutely the the way that the stock price most directly affects the way Apple is is uh, managed in the short term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like the difference between you know an Apple employee buying a bicycle or a Porsche. You know, that's what the difference is between uh, the stock price a year ago and the stock price now. You know what I mean? So it's it's not, it's pretty substantial. And yeah, no, you know, it's not like I'm saying everybody needs a sports car, but it does, when you, when you look at it in the aggregate, you're gonna, you have a certain value as an engineer and that value is really high right now. And so Apple's you know, got to got to play in that same field as everybody else. It's either that or they start spending cash, just flat out cash on on hiring people and paying them a lot of a lot of money. And that's never the way they've hired. Um, but it is a question about whether or not they may have to start. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder I feel like they're if they needed to to go that route, they could and part part of the reason why is that they make high margin, relatively low volume products, meaning low volume, even the iPhone, which is the most successful product anybody's ever had in the whole industry. It still is not famously, I mean, nobody really talks about it anymore because it's, everybody's sort of gotten it pounded through their heads that it doesn't really matter, but isn't the majority of smartphones, you know, that Android as a whole in the aggregate outsells the iPhone. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just that each one is, you know, very high average selling price, et cetera, et cetera. And that, so Apple, it, they, they sell enough of them that the scale is there that they can pay. You know, it's not quite that they need to hire engineers at a one-to-one ratio with the number of devices they sell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now they're so, they, they actually, I mean, you know, they have turnover like everybody else, but they're, they're so packed right now. Like I've heard all the buildings are like two to a desk, you know, stuff like that. Like they're, they're really like their amount of real estate. They have a lot of people hired and packed in there, which is why they're building this new, you know, headquarters. And they're already planning another big building because it's just like, they're growing. They've grown like crazy on the back of iPhone growth. You know, I think that Um, they don't want to say it. They just don't. I mean, it's just cause it's, 
not embarrassing, but they don't want to put a negative spin on something. Like the new campus still isn't even finished. They haven't had a grand opening yet. And they want the grand opening to be like this great celebration of look at this beautiful building and all these great features. But I really do feel like the the fundamental truth is they underestimated, vastly underestimated the size that the new headquarters should be. Mm-hmm. That they, <laughs> if they knew then what they know now, like if Tim Cook and could send back a message to his, you know, at the point where they were committing to break ground, you know, what was that around 2010, 2011, mm. whenever that was, like when Steve Jobs was going, still going before like the Cupertino t- city council and whatever. Mm-hmm. If they could go back and just sort of maybe like make some changes to the blueprints, they'd add a lot of space because. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, they'd probably double the size, to be honest. <laughs> my basic. I, I, what I've heard, and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's changed even since I've last talked to somebody about it, but basically they're not closing anything. You know, they're opening this new campus and they plan to fill the whole thing up. And all of the existing campus space that they have is going to continue being used. The, and just imagine mm-hmm. how, you know, imagine how crowded they must be at that, at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Cause all every, and they bought a bunch of real estate. I mean, almost all of, you know, Cupertino is like Apple now, but they they bought so much space, and if all of that is being used and all of the new capacity is being used, that's just you know that's just steady, right? And obviously, they're a growing company that has to hire, so yeah, they're gonna be they're gonna be hurting for space pretty quick. Yeah. Um, all right, let me take another break here and thank our next sponsor, and when we come back, I want to talk about another company that had a probably the worse week than Apple in terms of what the earnings did to the stock, and that's Amazon. Um, But I want to take a moment now and thank Warby Parker. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free. Where do you go? You go to warbyparker.com slash the talk show, and you can order your free home try-ons today. They have contemporary eyeglasses that are extremely affordable, very fashionable, um, it, they make their, their glasses are inexpensive enough that you can definitely treat them like an accessory in terms of um, you can have multiple pairs. You don't have to think like I have one pair of glasses. You can go and um, their regular prescription glasses start at just $95, which includes the prescription lenses. Um, and they don't nickel and dime you on coatings and stuff like that. You get really good lenses, the, the lenses that you would want for just 95 bucks. They have a titanium collection that's just 149 are 145, including, again, including the prescription lenses and premium Japanese titanium, uh, really nice French non-rocking screws, really, really good stuff. They also have non-prescription sunglasses. So even if you don't need uh, prescription glasses, if you just want to get a really nice pair of sunglasses, you can go there for that too. All of their glasses conclude anti-reflective, anti-glare coatings. They don't upsell you on those things. You, you just get it for free. Excellent hard case. I really do. The, the Warby Parker glasses cases are excellent, really great. Uh, a nice cleaning cloth. All of that stuff just comes um, with the glasses. Now, buying glasses online sounds tricky because it seems like the sort of thing, that's definitely the sort of thing you want to try them on before you buy. Well, they let you do that. You go there, you pick five, up to five pairs of glasses that you want to evaluate, and they send them to you free of charge. And it comes in like two or three days, you get a box, it has all five of them laid out. Try them on at home, and they've just got, you know, regular, clear, non-prescription lenses in them. You just try them on, look in the mirror, see how you look, which ones you like, and see if they're comfortable. 
uh, and you pick the one you want, you send it back, you go online and just say, here's the one I want. Uh, and, uh, within, I don't know, it's like a week or so they arrive to you. I just ordered a new pair myself about a week ago. It took about a week from when I said, here's the ones I want to where I got them. Uh, could not be easier. Everything. And even the box to send them back comes with a label pre pre printed. You just close the box, put a piece of tape on it and just stick the sticker. They've already given it to you just to give it to the UPS or FedEx guy or whatever. Could not be easier. So if you need glasses, you want another pair of glasses and want to buy an extra pair of glasses, go to warbyparker.com slash the talk show. They'll know you came from the show and you'll get your free home try-ins within just a few days. So my thanks to Warby Parker. All right, Amazon. So Amazon, I don't understand what happened to Amazon. <laughs> because Amazon announced record-breaking revenue. Uh, and I forget, you know, there are a couple of places that track online stuff that estimated that over the holiday quarter, Amazon did 51% of all the online shopping, at least in, in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've actually reached a point where they've, they've, they, they take up a majority of online shopping. Uh, and everybody I know uses Amazon more than they've ever used it before. We I, you just buy ridiculous stuff from Amazon now, right? Like we've we've got we, you know everybody laugh, but we got those clickers uh here in that, the uh, Gruber house. We've got one now for the, the detergent. So like when when we're doing laundry, if you run low on detergent, you just click your little button and uh-huh. and a couple of days later some tide shows up. Uh and <laughs> But because their profits were lower than, I guess, I guess the gist is, okay, their revenue's up, but their profits were lower than expected. Their stock took, I mean, like a bath, like like a 10% just cut right off the top. Mm-hmm. I'm looking, as we record, we're recording after the close of markets on Friday here. Amazon for the day was down 7.5%. On a day when the market as a whole was up about 2.5%. So, you know, compared to the market, they more or less lost 10% today, which is crazy because to me, revenue going way, way up and mm-hmm. profit missing the mark, that's the Amazon way. Like, who are these people who are invested in Amazon who who haven't noticed that that's the way Amazon rolls? Yeah. <laughs> so here's my question to you. I don't know. <laughs> I wonder if we've reached the point where maybe – you know, and I realize that arguments that the market is sensible, you know, and has some kind of collective logic to it, you know, the Mr. Market mm-hmm. argument. But I just wonder if maybe we reach the point where Mr. Market is sick of waiting for Amazon to have consistent profits and that the Amazon doesn't need to be profitable part of Amazon's history is coming to a close. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, that's a that's been a major question for a while. It's like it, a is Amazon even capable of doing that, like flipping some magical switch and becoming profitable? And then B, when is the when do investors get tired of waiting, right? Um, and the the you know Jeff Bezos has always been very upfront about what they're doing, which is investing almost every penny back in the company and into growth, and that is their plan. They want to become the biggest at everything they do, um, and investors have bought in, right? Because he's he's charismatic and the company has done well in growth. It hasn't missed those targets like it tends to to grow the way it grows uh and with, on a very predictable uh level for many many years but i mean like if you look at like every quarter since like late 2014 the the uh estimated earnings has been 
incorrect. Like the EPS, the earnings per share, has been wrong, uh, slightly low actually every year. Whether it was a loss or a gain, because Amazon has actually they marked a loss in like uh, Q1 of 2015, but uh, EPS wise, but they a negative EPS. But investors have always sort of like underestimated, and then like the holiday quarter they wildly, like wildly overestimated like by like 50% how right. much they thought Amazon was going to make. And it's, I don't know why, maybe it's just like everybody got like hopped up on holiday juice and decided, oh, Amazon is going to just make so much money because it's Christmas and blah, blah, blah. But that, I mean, they, you know, I don't know. They, they seem pretty upfront about their, their plans. So whether people are tired of it or not tired of it, I don't know if Amazon's going to change that strategy a whole lot. I mean, I guess people could force them to um, by severely undervaluing their stock, but I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't foresee that going anywhere. It really f- seemed to me like an Apple-like stock adjustment. You know, where in terms of it being what ought to be a very stable stock because they're a they're huge, they're a big company, they've been around for a while, uh, mm-hmm. but b they're they're to me pretty easily understood. This is Amazon and Apple. And what they announced, it may not be the best news you've ever heard, but it shouldn't affect the stock at like 10% of the market cap and that, and that type of volatility. Like this is not vol- a vol- volatile surprise that they've announced. This should be, you know, oh, maybe a little bit down. It just seems like it's, it's, almost, it's almost shocking how volatile a stock can be, even when the news that they're announcing – to me, isn't surprising in the least bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think some of it could be that there is a there's a way that that people are looking that analysts or or um, the people whose job it is to watch the market are looking at Amazon that's different now. But I don't think that Amazon looks at itself differently. You know, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think think so. You know, I think they're just they're, they're as far as they're concerned, they're just staying the course. There was, you know, there's some interesting math. Uh, I think Jason Del Rey at Recode did this math, and I thought it was a clever way of looking at it. But he was saying that Amazon has at least 46 million Prime members worldwide. Yeah. At this point, and I thought that he did a little bit of um, press digitation with uh, Amazon's very, very nebulous <laughs> uh, numbers because Amazon's famous for never giving exact numbers of anything they don't absolutely have to by law. But he he kind of back of the napkin about 46 million, at least 46 million Prime members, but it could be more. Um, and I think that that number is a really key indicator. It's a really, really interesting indicator of Amazon's philosophy, which is if you are a member of Amazon, your life is easier, right? Like that's what they want people to buy into. That's what they're selling. They're not selling individual products or or services. They're selling this idea that, oh, if you're a Prime member, the benefits that you get are so wide and varied that you'd be dumb not to. You know, you'd just be stupid not to. Right. And it's just one membership and you don't have to sign up for Amazon video and you don't have to sign up for Amazon books and Amazon uh, groceries. You just sign up for Amazon Prime and you get all of this stuff. And maybe you signed up Mm -hmm. for Amazon Prime primarily just to get as much free shipping as you can on books and miscellaneous physical things that you buy from Amazon and have shipped to your house so you don't have to go out to a store and buy it. But that the ancillary benefit of, hey, all these different devices you've got, like whatever brand phone it is in your pocket, and 
most set top boxes uh, like your TiVo or whatever, just go over and just click on the Amazon thing now and sign in with mm-hmm. the same ID and you're going to have all of this stuff that you can just watch. You mm-hmm. just watch it for, you know, just, it's, it's just there, you know, and including original, you know, programming. Uh, I think it's a very compelling story. And I really think that it's a remarkably um, self-aware company. Like I feel like Amazon, starting from Jeff Bezos on down, they know exactly who they are, what they want to be doing. And even, you know, their missteps, even the mistake, you know, things they made that didn't really take off. To me, they were very reasonable tries, you know, like the the phone, the fire phone. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a totally reasonable thing for them to have tried. Um, I would almost say sort of like with Facebook and some of the individual sub apps, you know, little mini apps that they've made that didn't really take off, but they were worthwhile experiments. And that maybe there are things that they could learn that you know go into the Facebook dot app itself. Same way with Amazon and the Fire Phone. Like the fact that that was a, a real, <laughs> a real disaster in terms of how <laughs> successful it was. I don't. It's not like they put any any kind of effort into that that hurt them anywhere else. And if it had taken off, if they'd figured out a way to make it click, that could have been a great idea. Yeah, I remember I was at the initial the first Kindle. Fire tablet announcement, and it was like an airplane hangar in LA or something, um, or some event space on near an airport. And I was I was sitting there, and they were showing all these charts with no numbers on them. Bezos, Bezos does. charts, right? Bezos charts, yeah, exactly. And like you know, oh, this uh, Amazon was here, and now it's here, and you know, a lot of really context-free stuff. And I was kind of zoning out, but. I we kind of had an inkling of what they were going to announce and kind of the basic thing, and I was and I was thinking to myself like if if they do this right, it's just like a single a single account with access to just everything, like everything you could possibly want in your life. I mean that's that's really really powerful. I mean this is what Apple's been trying to build piece by piece with iCloud, and that just Amazon had a lot of the other stuff that Apple didn't. They were just coming to the same place from opposite ends of the spectrum, and I thought that was a really valid thought to have. You know, a really valid effort to make, as you mentioned, to to kind of get there from their position, whereas Apple's coming from a hardware maker and getting into the middle. Um, where it's hardware and cloud working together, and Amazon's coming from the cloud side and doing the same thing, because they, both companies saw very well that that is the future of everything. Is that if you have a device that does not provide you access to everything that you need in your digital, you know, life on a server in the Midwest somewhere, then it's just an empty shell. It's a husk. And as far as Amazon is concerned, the the jelly filling is the important part and apple as far as apple's concerned the donut is the important part right and so they they just have differing philosophies as to what the the ma- the major minor is but they're going to the same place a jelly filled donut you know yeah. and i think that there's plenty to still explore there and i really like even i i know like um amazon has scaled back their um their labs a lot, their hardware labs and, and kind of rejiggered and moved things around. And there's been a lot of, I've talked to a lot of people who have come out of there and said, it was like, they were trying to run like an amazing innovation lab, like a Johnny Ive design studio, but they were trying to run it with Amazon efficiencies. Like you pay for your own parking and like, (laughs) you know, stuff like that, like crappy desks and whatnot. And it's, you know, 
<laughs> your desk is made out of a door. Right, exactly, exactly. And like I, you know, hey, whatever. You gonna everybody's got their own style, but I just don't think that worked really well for that type of environment. You know, sometimes it matters. You know how you feel about where you work, not just what you're doing. Um, but regardless, I think that I would not be surprised for them to take another stab at that. You know, yeah. to to kind of come at it again from a slightly different angle. Uh, to say, look, this thing is just a portal into Amazon. The specs don't even matter because they were like, really, they were talking all, you know, look at this, you know, you're getting this for this. They're, they were high on the value, right? Which is a very Amazon thing. You're getting this processor and this RAM for this much money. It's just, it's half the price of our competitors or whatever, right? And I just don't think that people care that much. And I don't think it matters. You know, it's just, this is a thing that gets you all of your stuff. That's it. That's all that matters. I think that there's, that Amazon's an interesting comparison to Apple too, in terms of the Bezos charts, um, and that for as secretive as Apple is about its future products, and they are famously, you know, the most secretive company in the industry when it comes to what they're working on, or at least they try to be. Um, historically, they're actually they're, what they what they've released and what they continue to release in their uh, quarterly financial statements is actually pretty open. Um, but that's what makes the fact that they said it in advance so that it wouldn't come as a surprise, but that they're not mm -hmm. going to release sales figures for Apple Watch um, different. And I can't help but think that part of it is that they look at Amazon and the fact that Amazon doesn't really doesn't break anything down. They just say, here's our revenue, here's our profit, and they'll say where some things are up or whatever, but they don't announce, you know, actual – they don't put actual numbers on the charts. Um mm -hmm. I can't help but think that Apple's executive team looks at that and says, boy, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it would be an amazing scenario for them to be like, I don't know, we'd like we sold the most ever. <laughs> yeah. That, well, that's exactly the most what they ever. Did. The most ever. No, they did with the watch. Yeah. For that's sure. exactly what they did with the watch. <laughs> they, they, we sold the most watches ever. <laughs> How many? The most ever. Oh, good. Great. Excellent. You did a good job. Keep it up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that they do get hold of different standards. Um, I, I think the Amazon sort of set themselves up for that by never, ever, ever entertaining the numbers thing. Um, but I also think that because of the expectations people have for Amazon growth, aka uh, huge revenue growth but flatline profits, you know, um, I think somebody tweeted like, uh, I can't remember who it was, uh, maybe Matthew Iglesias. Tweeted yeah. a chart from the Financial Times. Uh, I think I saw it because uh, Jean Louis Gasset retweeted it. But it's like he, he Matthew Legacius was saying, "I love this chart," and it was just the the profits is a pink line that just dribbles along the bottom near zero, like just <laughs> by zero, and then the revenue is just like whoop straight up to a hundred, you know, right? Uh, in, on the millions, I guess. But it's it's pretty crazy that they are able to get away with that. But it is about positioning. Right? It's about setting yourself up in, in this long-term story that Amazon feels and thinks of itself as a young company, as a, like, we're just getting started. We're, like, we're just starting to get into, like, our teen years. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're raring to go, and this is just beginning. And, like, all of that is, is messaged externally and internally. And, you know, it's sort of like the stay hungry thing, right? Yep. You know, we, we don't want to feel complacent or whatever but it also allows them to maybe excuse is the wrong word but i'm going to use it allows them to excuse that particular differential between their growth and profits by saying look we're in our growth phase we don't yet serve 
every person on earth, we're in our growth phase, you know? And I think that that's a very, very interesting thing for them to be able to get away with. And it's hundred percent unique in the, the lexicon of tech companies out there. Hmm. <clears throat> well said. Let me take this break and, and thank our third and final sponsor of the show. It's our good friends at Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that they sell for a fraction of the price of the mainstream competitors when you go into a regular mattress store. The mattress industry has inherently forced customers into paying notoriously high markups for incredibly confusing lineups of mattresses. They do all sorts of things. The regular mattress companies do these things where if you go into mattress store A and you make a list of like the three mattresses from the company that you're interested in, and then you go to another store to see if you can compare the prices, the mattresses have different names. Even though they're like the same thing as in another store, they sell each one to each retailer with different names to, to purposefully make it hard to compare. Really, really just a rotten, rotten practice, and it's a real pain in the ass to buy a mattress. Casper is trying to revolutionize the mattress industry by just doing it a completely direct and completely non-confusing way. So they sell direct, number one. That cuts the price of the mattress dramatically because you buy it right from them. You don't go to a retailer and there's no uh, wholesale you know, markup or anything like that. The quality. Casper's mattresses provide uh, resilience, long-lasting support, comfort, and it's you don't have to choose from like a confusing array of what type of mattress you want. They've made one type of mattress. It's a hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam, and it gives you what they call just the right bounce, just the right sink. It's and, and, and in a way that you're never going to be able to tell by just laying on a mattress in a retail store for 30 seconds and saying, I guess it feels good. This is a mattress that's been engineered to give you a great night's sleep. Um, trust mattress experts, right? You Normal people buy a mattress once every, I don't know, five years, 10 years, something like that. How are you going to become an expert at buying a mattress if that's how often you try them out? These are engineers who they've like devoted their life. They've got you know mattress engineers. Casper, let them just do it for you. Um, regular mattresses often cost well over $1,500. Casper mattresses, here's their prices. $500 for a twin size, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for full, $850 for queen, and just $950 for a king-size mattress. Uh, now, they definitely understand that buying a mattress online can have customers wondering how that's even possible. Number one, because they they build them out of these this, this combination of uh, latex foam and memory foam, they can pack the mattress into what for a mattress is a remarkably small box. So shipping, they don't ship mattress size boxes. They ship these little sort of dorm room refrigerator size boxes. Shows up your, at your house, you put it in a room where you want it, you open it up according to the instructions, and then it just sucks air in from your room, and all of a sudden it goes from being this little box to being a mattress. Um, it's completely risk-free. So number one, shipping is easy. Uh, you don't have to worry about it. Number two, what if you don't actually like it? What if you listen to me and tell you that it has just the right sink, just the right bounce, and then you get this in your bedroom and you're like, this doesn't have the right sink, doesn't have the right bounce. I don't like it. Uh, they give you a 100-day period where if you don't like it, they'll just take it away for free. Free return, get all your money back, no questions asked, no hard sell, up to 100 days. You got th That's over three months where you can just sleep on it every night and decide whether you actually like it and whether it's actually as good a mattress as I'm telling you that it is. 
Uh, I think in the, when they first started sponsoring the show, that was uh, like a lower number, like 60 days or something like that. And they've upped it to 100 days because that's how few people were sending back these mattresses. So here's what you get. This is just win, win, win all around. You get a great mattress. You save tons of time versus going out and buying one in retail. It's way easier to have delivered. Uh, and you have no risk. So you get a great mattress at a great price, and you save lots of time, and you have no risk. So you can't lose. Uh, last but not least, Casper mattresses are made in America, right here in the United States. So where do you go to find out more? Go to casper.com slash the talk show. Casper.com slash the talk show. And uh, just by using that link, you will get 50 bucks towards any mattress you purchase. So you'll save money, and they'll know you came from the show at casper.com slash the talk show. Uh, anything else you want to talk about before we talk about our bourbon collections? <laughs> uh, you know, one thing we didn't talk about with Amazon is the Echo, which I think is actually super important to them. Um, maybe not, you know, like monetarily yet, but I think it's actually very, very Amazon-y. Um, have you played with that thing at all? No, I haven't. I, I, cause you had to sign up for it and get on a list and I didn't feel like doing that. And now Mm -hmm. I wish I had, cause I wish I had one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's (laughs) the, the integrations are starting to really kick into gear now. Like you're, you know, Ift works with it. So you can tell Alexa, which is the the assistant name that they've chosen. These are all women. Why are they all women? Um, uh, they're all women they, in America. It's actually different. It's actually, a, uh, I'll have to find the link, but it's actually interesting. It's a cultural thing? It's a cultural thing around the world. Mm, mm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'll have to look at that. That sounds interesting. Um, yeah, so anyway, you tell her, hey, you know, turn off my lights, uh, read me the news, whatever. Like the news thing I think is even built into Amazon's thing. But it, the external external integrations are, are growing. Like you're just seeing a larger and larger number of external apps or hardware supporting it. So you can just basically, you know, computer, um, bring me the news or computer, uh, what temperature is it? You know, yeah. things like that. And I think that that's a pretty compelling use case. And the Hey Siri thing, obviously, in the iPhone is Apple's approach to that. And then Amazon doesn't have, <laughs> obviously, they don't have a Fire Phone in every home. So they can't do that. Um, so they had to go this route. And it's it's sort of like an ordering thing. You can order, of course, stuff from Amazon with it. Um, and then you can ask it things. It just seems like a really, really cool thing. Obviously, there's tons of creep factor, too. But it seems like a really cool thing. Yeah, and I wonder, in a broad perspective whether or not you know and clearly that's that this sort of ai based interface you know conversational ai you know it's it's you know it's the how from 2001 really is the the Mm -hmm. end goal where you have a computer that is a fully functioning or seems like a fully functioning sentient sentient person that you can communicate with and that you don't have to think about structuring your commands in a certain syntax or knowing that you can only you can ask about sports and weather and news but you can't really just you know talk to it in a conversational mm-hmm. way that to where you can where you can just talk to it the way you would talk to a person um it, clearly that's the way a lot of this stuff is going i mean it's it apple's doing it google's doing it amazon's doing it uh mm-hmm. i wonder at a basic level if it's better to just have a device like Alexa where that's the only interface as opposed to the way that Android phones are gaining these, you know, uh, okay Google commands in the way that Hey Siri is being added to. I'm sorry for any, if I said that off for anybody. 
every time we talk about this. I'm surprised it didn't make my phone go off. My phone is right here next to me, and it did not go off. <laughs> Just make s- a policy to say it in a weird voice. Be like, and so when you activate your, hi, Siri. <laughs> <laughs> when you say that, say those magic words. Whether yeah. there's a limit to, for a device that's fundamentally about a, a home screen full of apps, and you go and launch an app, and then go back to the home screen and go to another app, which is a great, it's you know obviously been great for the last 10 years for the iPhone. Whether or not there's a limit to how how good the Siri functions can be for a conversational interface for the phone on a device that's fundamentally app based. Mm-hmm. Mm. You are you talking about the silos of data? Well, yeah, silos of data, and just whether or not it's it's never going to be as good as it could be, just because it's it, it's just never. It just never works out to glom an entire. Oh, I new... see. So constraints, because of the constraints, it's going to be better because it has to be. Right. That's what I think. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. I mean, I think that the Alexa thing is just the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, of course, Hey Siri and OK Google do play into that too. But um, a lot of these functions are going to be um, massively improved by the introduction and application of AI. Right. And I think AI is very you know, it's kicking into high gear right now. It's, there's tons and tons of heat in the startup world um, about AI. Um, I'd like to refer to AI and I'm, you know, forgive me. Somebody else has probably said this more eloquently in the past, but I just haven't come across it. But I, I'd like to view it as a technology that is additive. Like you pour AI into things and it makes those things better, right? Whereas opposed to some other technologies are displacing technologies. They supplant or replace older things, right? You don't still keep a calculator around and put AI in it. You just use your phone. Your phone has a calculator in it. But that, that replaced your calculator. It replaced your camera. It replaced your whatever. But AI, when you – it's a technology. And when you do put it – or and a discipline, I guess you could call it. But when you put it into things, it makes those things better, and better able to understand and better able to contextualize your wishes and desires so it improves their functionality. So something like, hey, Siri, with a fully functioning AI component, not just like bits and bobs of AI theory applied to a chatbot or applied to you know finding information, but a, like a real AI system. I mean, I think that's pretty exciting. And something like Alexa allows you to take full advantage of that because it does say like, look, this is the only way you can use me, man. Like you just talk to me because I can, I can handle it. You know, I can get you there from here. Um, and that, that feature seems very, very compelling. And if Amazon wants to be in control of your home and in control of the goods that and services that come in and out of your home, then I think that that's a great place for them to be is right on your countertop. Right. Yeah. I, I don't, do you have one? Do you have one at the house? No, I don't. I'm talking about it a whole lot, but I don't have one. I literally have just like, I've seen other ones in use and, you know, kind of dinked around and it's just, seems really cool. I just haven't gotten around to ordering one because um, we use we have those Amazon Dash buttons, like the ones you're talking about. And like, yeah. I'm like, I'm good with those. Like I walk by my ca- cabinet, I'm like, oh, I need kitty litter and I just punch it, you know. <laughs> Jonas loves the Amazon Dash buttons and so he likes Does it. He? Yeah, but it's, and he's a, he's a really, he's 12, so he's, he's, you know, he's not super young. And he's right. a relatively disciplined kid. We've never really had problems with him, you know, doing anything out of control or, you know, like, uh, you know, like trusting him, like, with something like that. But it's so appealing to him. He really wants to press the button. And then he's, mm-hmm. he's like, can I press it again? And it's like, no, no, you cannot. Like, <laughs> like you, We do not need more baby wipes. <laughs> right. It's like, 
We'll let you do it once, but like opening the the door just a bit to let him click the button once. It's it's uh-huh. not good because he wants to, he just wants to go click 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 click. <laughs> it's a very strange thing to watch. Right. Right. And I yeah. kind of understand no, the appeal it. of it because I kind of would like to too. I would just like to see like thirty seven uh cases of paper towels show up at our house. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. You'd be like, well, I guess we don't need to buy paper towels for like a it year would and be half. a it would be a fun thing to have delivered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like well, you gotta have that and a fifty gallon tub of lube, so you have right. something to clean it up with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so sorry. Anyway, I digressed on that, but I just thought that I think that's an interesting bit of their business. Oh, I definitely agree, and I th- and I you know, the other thing that it has is. Okay, so they try. We we talked about that they tried to make a phone and they didn't make a phone. Well, maybe the phone business is over in terms of these little four to five inch pieces of touchscreen glass that go in our pocket. And the answer is mm-hmm. it's the iPhone and Android, and that's right. that's who's you know those are the two that that won out. Um, what's the next thing? The next thing, you know, in terms of hey, what about like ubiquitous computer that you just speak to? That there is no winner in that yet. And so that mm-hmm. it's, you know, that's open territory where they still have a chance to win. Whereas the touchscreen interface that, you know, is on the piece of glass that you carry in your pocket, it's too late. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think you might be right. I, I, it's hard at this point to foresee anybody really chipping a, a major chunk out of that particular business. But there are plenty of other businesses and plenty of other ways for people to interact with, you know, a, like I said, a data a data farm somewhere in in Idaho. So there's no guarantee that the pocket computer is the only interface that we're ever going to have that that really has an enormous effect on the market. So right. like, I think the people's best efforts are placed elsewhere. I linked to a couple pieces in the last few days. One from Tom Warren at The Verge, and then uh, a Paul Thorat piece just on Hey, I think Windows Phone might it might be time to just call it a you know. <laughs> Call it a, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I feel like the piece I linked to at the at the Verge. Maybe I was too flippant. I didn't want to come across as as gloating or you know mm-hmm. happy about it. If anything, I'm a little sad. Like, and I kind of feel the same way about Windows Phone that I felt about WebOS, the the Palm touchscreen thing, mm-hmm. which was that this is clearly nicely enough designed that if yeah. if market share were distributed fairly on the basis of design quality it i don't know where the what number windows phone would have wound up with but it would have been a big enough number that it was a healthy platform like maybe it still would have been third place but it it wouldn't have been you know would have been like third place with a decent decent chunk of the pie Mm -hmm. and that's just not how it's just not you know and that famously that's you know it, it led wall street collectively to say design doesn't matter because you know Back when Apple was doing very poorly in the late '90s, mid to late '90s, everybody would say, "Well, you know, Apple stuff is way better designed than PCs and Microsoft software," and the market would say, "Well, there's proof that design doesn't matter." Mm-hmm. I would say what was actually proved is that design is not enough; that you, it needs to be part of a compelling story, and that mm-hmm. it certainly doesn't hurt, and it can help, and it's allowed Apple to sort of build this sustainable success story. Um, but it's just not enough. And that to me, as somebody who cares so much about design, it's just sort of sad to see Windows Phone not really take off because it's certainly a lot of original thinking. And I, you know, the times I've spent with the Windows Phone, I've enjoyed it more, way more than I have when I've tried an Android phone. 
Other than yeah, the fact that there yeah. aren't any apps for it. Right, right. The first-party stuff is pretty much all you enjoy because the third-party stuff is, if it's there, it's usually not built extremely well or, or never got the chance to be. Um, I always liked the hardware. I mean, like I said, the original Lumia, I reviewed that thing. Um, the, the original rounded corner model, what was that? 850? I can't remember. I believe you're right. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to get the number wrong, probably. Right. But I just loved I mean, it's just so, like, it feels like a lozenge, and yeah. the material that they used was just warm in your hands. A it luxu- was really good. It, it was a luxurious polycarbonate. And I know, you <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. you can say that, oh, you're just looking for a fancy word for plastic. But it mm-hmm. it just felt like, because of the word plasticky as an adjective has a negative connotation, it just isn't fair to call it plastic, because it really felt like a high-quality mm-hmm. material. Yeah, and at the time, all the iPhones were hard-edged, um, right. and and that it provided a nice contrast. And of course, now the iPhones are back to feeling more organic, which I appreciate. But I think that definitely it stood out, and it was well-designed, and it was a beautiful, beautiful piece of kit. And I thought that their OS did complement the you know slightly bull-nosed touchscreen and everything that they did about it. I thought it complemented it itself very well. But it goes to show, as you mentioned, it's you know execution at scale is not just about design. You can't just be like, this is a beautiful piece of thing because it, you know, that doesn't always work. I mean, look at the DeLorean, you know? <laughs> right. I, yeah, I think, and I really do think it's existed a lot longer than WebOS did. This is Windows Phone. Simply by the races of Microsoft's willingness to absorb losses quarter after quarter after quarter to try to get this thing off the ground. But Mm-hmm. It it's getting to the point like the year over year sales of the Windows Phone for the holiday quarter the drop was terrible. I mean it was like a forty percent drop, which is mm-hmm. uh, for a platform that was already really struggling in terms of market share. Uh, yeah, one point one percent of the market is not going to cut it. Yeah, and even if you want to, I, I don't even know what you compare it to. I mean, I guess the best thing you could compare it to would be maybe the max market share at the at its nadir at, at you know circa. I don't know, 1999, 2000 or so, um, you know, which was maybe worldwide, something like 2%, 2 or 3% of the PC market. Um, but it was a different, it wasn't just like that Apple had any, any 2 to 3% of the market. It wasn't like a random 2 to 3%, which I think would have been completely unsustainable. It was the fact that they had very specific 2 to 3%, like largely in North America, so that it wasn't spread out across the world. Uh, they had, Certain industries, like the design industry, where their market share was, you know, way into the double digits, mm-hmm. and so it could sustain things like uh, graphic design apps, and you know, and there's certain types of you know third-party apps that that Apple and the Mac always had an advantage over Windows for because the, all the people who cared about having really good quality indie apps were all by self-definition they were they were Mac users. Whereas right. Windows, Windows Phones one to two percent of the market doesn't really have any kind of cohesion like that. It's not a compelling target for anything in terms of software development. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Exactly. You can't build it and they will come. It's got to go together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, last but not least, the only thing I ever talked about was just to talk about bourbon. You do this thing. <laughs> it's an excuse for this whole thing, right? <laughs> yeah. You you're starting to annoy me though because you you'll do this thing where you'll get. You'll you'll like make a run and find some kind of amazing find to add to your liquor your 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 liquor cabinet at home. And it's gotten to the point where like you you've got so much good stuff there that I'm I'm sort of annoyed. 
<laughs> well, I mean, you're welcome to come over and drink it. I mean, you got to come to Fresno, but <laughs> people often. <laughs> but I bring it up because uh, I get it on people. Under, people know that I like to drink, and people know that mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, the the sweet, you know, the brown liquors, the your bourbons, your rye's are are the ones that are sort of up my alley and the ones I'm more interested in. And I get so I get people asking for my advice, and I often don't mm-hmm. know how to answer. Like I feel like I know more than most people, and I have uh, very strong opinions on it. But uh, mm-hmm. but to me, it's a very hard answer, hard question to answer. Yeah, I do, it is. I I get this thing when people come over, you know, people come over to the house and be like, you know, I'm like, hey, uh, yeah, would you like a drink or something? You know, you know, you want soda or water? Or do you want a drink? And because um, I don't, you know, I don't like to force people to drink <laughs> if they don't want to, but when they come over and go, Oh no, yeah, I don't, sure. Well, I'll have anything. I don't care. Um, that's like the hardest for me <laughs> when they don't, I'm like, well, crap, what do I give them? You know? Cause you know, there are, as we've spoken about this before, but there's some, like, I'm a big bourbon fan. Like I, I like bourbon. I like whiskey too, but I like bourbon a lot. Um, and so there's some kinds of bourbon and whiskey that are extremely challenging to the palate. Like they're very aggressive or they, they're very high alcohol content and they can be appreciated for what they are, but you can't just drop that on someone. It's like hitting them in the face with a hammer when they ask you for like a, you know, a kiss. It's like, gonna, it's, they're not going to have a good time and they're not, you know, they're going to be like, what'd you do this to me? This is not very nice. Um, so you have to start them off with something that's simpler, you know, that less, less complex and has just a couple of really simple notes that they can they can palate, but then the instinct is to want to give them the good stuff because you're like you're my guest, you know. I want you to taste this amazing you know thing. But usually the quote unquote good stuff, especially when it comes to like bourbon and that kind of hooch, is it's like really aggressive, you know, really yeah. challenging. And so you just gotta kind of go like, eh, I'll start you off with this, you know. And uh, so I typically start them off with like. You know Elijah Craig, which is a really solid. I know you like that stuff too. Yeah, it's really solid bourbon, and it it tastes good. It's easy to drink, and you know it feels good in the belly, and it's nice little kind of warming up uh, for the throat and everything. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I have. I only. Have, I, I looked before we started recording, and I have two like special bottles of. Uh, they're both actually rye. They're neither of them are bourbons, but I have two special, like really hard to find. Uh, bottles in my collection right now and actually i've never opened either of them i have a thomas h handy sazerac straight rye mm. whiskey mm-hmm. uh now that's 64 and this is i love it it's you can tell it's literally like really really small batch because it's just written on the label with a sharpie it says 64 <laughs> 64.2 percent alcohol by volume which is what is that in proof that's like so it's like 128 proof right now, most Bourbons and rye are somewhere between forty-five, right? Somewhere a little north or south of forty-five percent alcohol by volume, right? Which right. is ninety proof, um, and that's what most people would consider to be very, very a very drinkable alcohol by volume. Um, mm-hmm. And then I have uh, from Willet, I have this Willet XCF. Have you ever heard of this? It's exploratory. XCF. Yes, that's the ones that do like experimental one, right? Yeah, exploratory cask flavor, and it's they even okay. put like a version number on it, one point I, I, a friend of I don't even know how the hell I ended up with this. My a friend of mine 
was able to get it. He was like, do you want some? And I was like, of course, get me a bottle. And I, I don't even remember what I paid for it, it but it was like enough that I, I blacked it out of my memory. <laughs> because yeah, it, yeah, that's the key, really, when you're buying good booze. It's just, don't, you know, don't look at the, how much you paid. <laughs> uh, but I haven't opened either of them, but I'm saving them in back of my mind for like when, you know, good friends come over. That's that's the sort of that's the sort mm-hmm. of booze that you save for a special occasion but then you run into exactly the problem that you're talking about which is that most people you can't just pour them like 130 no proof uh-uh. <laughs> uh, thing and that they're going to enjoy it or appreciate it at all right they're gonna have a bad time for sure i mean i think like one of the ones that i like to give people when they're like yeah let me try something more interesting that i may not have tried and you know that's maybe they they have had bourbon they're they're a whiskey drinker like they've had you know the standard stuff or whatever uh, and they're interested in something a little bit more out there is normally I'll I'll pour them some um, some Noah's Mill um, which is a really respectable and kind of out of the way um, bourbon that most people won't have had um, it, it's getting a little bit more popular these days I think in the last couple of years they have they've you're you're able to find it more places. Um, it's a, I think it's a blend. I can't remember, but it's like a bunch of different years, ages between like four years and twenty years or something like that. But it's pretty pretty decent, and I think that's like a hundred and. 114 proof or something like that. I can't remember right. exactly, but it's up there. And it, but it, it has like this, this little bit of maple, and I taste a little bit of vanilla in it. So it's like very, it has a little bit of sweetness to counteract that, that real spicy um, back of your throat, you know, thing. But that, it, it's like an introduction to them, to like opens their mind because there is flavor there, but there's also that spice, that real like raspy spice that gets them, wakes them up, you know, opens up their nasal passages and, you know, constricts the throat for just a second as it goes down and you breathe out and all everything opens up, you know, yeah. and you got to kind of prime the pump with something like that before you can move them into something like a Yamazaki or, 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 um, you know, something really high alcohol that also has a great amount of taste to it. Like a, like a Willits pot still or something like that. The Willits. So the, I looked it up. The XCF is only 103 proof. So Mm -hmm. it's actually, I think it probably would be the one that would be better if I were to have somebody over and, and, you know, let's open a bottle of some special stuff that people could, could drink that. And according Mm -hmm. to this, the, the MSRP was 140 of, bottle so that's probably about what i paid for it mm. which is yeah that's way more than i usually pay <laughs> my my advice though to people who who are sort of just wanting to get into it is i go back to i think i've mentioned this on the show you before but that uh there's a golf book i, don't, I haven't played golf regularly in years but a guy named harvey mm-hmm. penick p-e-n-i-c-k his little red book and he was like this old really old like he he coached golf until he was like 100 years old in texas um and he had this little notebook of advice, and he turned it into a book. And it's just, it's just gold. It is just such mm-hmm. a great book. And it's, <laughs> but one of his things was one of his pieces of advice. If you're learning to play golf, is master one club, and it ought to be, <laughs> it ought to be like a seven iron because a seven right. iron, seven iron exactly, is right yeah. in the middle. <laughs> and that if you were going to, let's just say on a dare, if you were going to play an entire round of golf with just one club and a putter, a seven iron would uh-huh. be a pretty reasonable choice. And that mm-hmm. just go out there and just master that one club. And when you go to the driving range, just at least half the time, don't even take the other clubs out of your trunk. Just take your seven iron and hit the whole bucket of balls with the seven iron and mm-hmm. get to know that one club in the middle of the range 
better than all your other clubs combined. And that fundamentally, it's a great advice because you shouldn't have a different swing for a driver than you do with an, a, a wedge. You should have like one swing that you adjust to the different lengths of clubs. Right. Um, and then you go from there. And then if you're even having a bad day, you know you can at least hit a seven iron. Um, mm-hmm. And then you judge all these other clubs from there. That's my advice for a lot of things in life. And it's same thing for like if you wanted to get into whiskey and bourbon is find one that you really like. And then mm-hmm. to just buy that one a couple times in a row and really get to know it and then base your opinions on other things as you start to experiment from there. Right. Yeah, if you find something that you really enjoy, you're like, oh, man, I like drinking this, that's probably a good indicator of what your palate is, you know? And it's bourbon is one of those things, uh, you know, whiskey or even alcohol in general, but bourbon and whiskey especially are one of those things that are very much like wine in that somebody can tell you all day that something is the best thing that you've ever tasted or that you're going to taste or whatever. But the moment you find something you like, that's your palate. That's just you. That's what you like. And you can, of course, increase your appreciation of things over time by reading about them and understanding the flavors of it or understanding the history of it. And even if you don't necessarily want to drink it every day, you can appreciate something. But if you are able to find something that you generally enjoy that tickles your pleasure centers, that's your taste. And that's okay. Like, don't let anybody tell you that, you know, you're, what you're drinking is not, you know, enjoyable to you. Cause if it's enjoyable, it's enjoyable. And that's why I love this whole resurgence in recent years of these craft bourbon makers, right? There's lots of bourbons under four years old now that are, that are pretty drinkable, uh, and there's plenty under 10 or, or 15 that are amazing for not a whole lot of money. You know, they very, very affordable bourbons like Old Weller, for instance, which is getting a little harder to find because it's made from the same mash as Pappy's. But um, Old Weller, either they're, they're 12 year or they're select or they're antique. Um, the antique is a little spicier, but the Old Weller 12 year, I think, is really really delicious and it's just unassuming small unassuming bottle with a plastic cap and it runs 35 dollars, i think something like that and it's just so so smooth and tasty and drinkable and like you know it's enjoyable to drink it doesn't it has a little it'll open you up a little bit like any whiskey would but it doesn't just like you know hit you in the face and it's just really really enjoyable and yes it's not like a top shelf, you know, whiskey, but that's not the point. You know, the right. point is, does it make you feel amazing? Does it make you feel um, those those sensations of like warmth and sentimentality and all the stuff that you know a nice little glass will will bring you? And I think that that's important. Yeah, I tell you, my the go to the one that really was is like the seven iron of my palate is just bullet bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. I didn't even know that. I, like when I first, I was like, this this one, and it you could drink it any way I would want to drink it. If I want to drink it in an old fashioned, want to drink it, just you know, neat. Want to just drink it in a glass with ice. I like it every. I like it every way. But I like mm-hmm. I know it. And in hindsight, what I've known, what I found out about Bullet since then is that Bullet is considered by many people to be a very rye heavy bourbon. Mm-hmm. And in even fact, the non-rye, even right, the regular. Their, their orange label bourbon is is mm-hmm. rye heavy. And then now they they make, they have a green label rye. Um, uh, but it explains why I like rye so much in general, is that my mm. favorite bourbon is a sort of rye heavy one. Um, Got it, yeah. 
but that's my advice to people is more than any specific list of of bourbons that I could that we could give you to start with is just try some of the bigger label ones and find one that you're like there I like that one better than the other ones that I've had and then just drink that one for a while yeah yeah, exactly. Because if you don't have a baseline, you'll never know. You know, if you're all over the map, you'd be like, oh, this tastes good. I, this, I guess this tastes good. I have no idea, you know. But if you find something that you like and you're, you lay those tracks, then you can take detours, you know, left or right and, and find other things you like. Yeah, one of my favorites, too, another one of my favorites is, uh, have we talked about this, Eagle Rare? Uh, yeah, I think so. Merlin yeah. Mann turned me on to this a while ago. And it's mm-hmm. really, I mean, it's another one where it's super affordable. I think in Pennsylvania, it's usually like $24. Um, mm-hmm. And it comes in like that that big, tall wine-shaped glass that's just like the most generic-shaped booze glass, you know, or, or bottle of the booze could ever be shipped in. It's just like a, mm-hmm. a cylindrical, round, tall glass. Like, there's nothing special or you know it's so generically shaped like the silhouette of the the glass uh 24 bucks super reasonable price and it's it it it, you know if you were stranded on a desert island and all you had was a case of of eagle rare you'd be like oh that's i got lucky (laughs) yeah i i do have a bottle of it and i i do like it a lot it's a little it's a little hotter than an Elijah Craig like twelve year, which I like the Elijah Elijah Craig twelve year is my well whiskey. That's kind of what I pour in my decanter and mm-hmm. keep there to make an old fashioned during the week, you know, if it's not not a special occasion or whatever. And it's just a little bit spicier than that, and but it's still extremely tasty. I I, yeah. I agree with you on that. Um I you think that they're go ahead. Well, people keep asking me if I've had the Elijah Craig eighteen and I can't find it. Oh right. Uh-huh. Have you? Yes, I have a bottle. It's delicious. <laughs> See, that's what I mean. You make me ang- <laughs> you make me angry. <laughs> Look, this is the advantage of living where I live is that I've got this local liquor guy who runs a liquor store, and he just finds me everything that I ask for. Like I'll be like, "Hey, I've been really, you know, thinking about this. Or I, I tried this once, and I really like it. And if you could find me a bottle, I'd really appreciate it." And he just, I like, I don't know what back of what truck these things fall off of but he just they just show up on his shelf and it's just a little liquor store in you know i mean fresno's not exactly a teeny town but it's like five hundred thousand people but most folks here i'm gonna be honest they don't drink super high-end bourbon you know i mean there's probably you know a few hundred of us in town that maybe like this stuff or even care or know what it is so if you can convince somebody to stock it then you're pretty much got free reign you know whereas in a bigger city like san francisco or somebody someplace like that yeah i mean good luck right it's all raffled and you know all that stuff so that's how i find some of this stuff but yeah so the 18 is it's good it's really solid because it's just like it's it's just like a like a stuffy couch version of the elijah craig comfy chair you know Mm -hmm. Like where you just fall into a little bit more, it's a little bit more aromatic, like it's more, there's more scent to it, it opens up a little bit, um, and it also is a little teeny bit mellower and smoother, uh, which is almost impossible, you know, from the from the 12-year, which is really good. And that 12-year, too, very affordable, very affordable bourbon that's anywhere, you can find it anywhere, you find it at like BevMo or, yeah. you know, whatever your local chain place is. And that's it's probably really, about really 25 bucks, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, like at Christmas time, you can find them on special for twenty bucks. Sometimes it's it's great. It's yeah. a really really good buy. Um, I like that a lot. Yeah, very much compared to, comparable to um, beer, where you don't have to pay much at all for really really good stuff. That's another thing that I really I personally enjoy <laughs> greatly about 
drinking bourbon and rye is that you, you really don't have to spend much at all to get seriously, seriously good stuff. So that would be my last mm-hmm. bit of advice is really don't don't get fooled by the fact that for things like uh, – well, just to compare it to another whiskey, to compare it to like scotch, like good scotch mm-hmm. is necessarily expensive. And I don't know how much of that is just the shipping from – uh, Scotland and how much of it is, is taxes and how much of it is just the way that the industry is set up to keep the prices high. I don't know, but mm-hmm. you you can get easily get three top notch bottles of bourbon for the same price as one top notch bottle of scotch. Yeah, easily, easily. And obviously you have to sort of like the, you know, the taste of rye and the kind of mash that whiskey's made out of, but uh, or bourbon's made out of, but I just, if you are interested in that kind of thing, you, yeah, it's so affordable compared to uh, anything in the middle to high end or rare whiskeys. They're just, they get so crazy so quick um, because they're just very limited capacity. Most of the places don't make any more than X number of cases and haven't for decades. You know, so there's just, it's just a limitations thing. It's like, they only make so many cases. That's all they're ever going to make. Good luck, you know? Yeah. And um, that, like a lot of these bourbon distilleries, especially any of the Buffalo Trace um, bourbons that they can distribute it through Buffalo Trace, they're fairly high capacity, but still pretty good quality uh, bourbons. Yep. So you do not have to spend a ton of money. So, I mean, if, and there's one too, like if you, they've been marketing really, really heavily lately, but I actually, I tried it recently just on a whim, and I, I have to admit it was not bad at all, was, is the Larceny. I don't know if you've had Larceny. I've seen um, it. I actually, yeah. I can see the label in my head, but I have not. Is that that's a Buffalo Trace? Uh, I don't know who distributes it. That's a good question. Uh, maybe I can find out. But the Larceny is, it's like 22 bucks at most places, at the most. And it is, it's a Kentucky-style bourbon. Um, it's not bad at all. Uh, John Fitzgerald is is the distributor. But it's, um, it's pretty good. I, I mean... You know, like in, I have to preface all of this talk that we've been having about bourbon. Like, I don't know anything, you know, <laughs> this is just, all I know is what I taste, you know, and, and a little bit that I try to absorb and talk to people about, but I, you know, it may be a mass market thing, but it's pretty solid. Right. It's like one of those things, like a two buck chuck where you're like, right. Hey, this isn't that bad. Uh, but it's like 92 proof. It's, it's a wheat bourbon. Wheat bourbons are generally smoother, or wheated, excuse me, bourbons are generally smoother and kind of more forgiving and easier to drink. Um, Cause it's like wheat instead of rye after corn. Right. Cause like the majority is corn and then, and then wheat instead of corn and then rye. Um, and that that um, Old Weller, that's also a weeded uh, bourbon. But it's and pr- most famously, pretty damn drinkable. Most famously, Pappy Van Winkle is a weeded bourbon. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Pappy's, a lot of the the legend around Pappy's is that it was one of the first, like, really um, highly rated weeded bourbons. Like, right. So you're saying Larceny is, is weeded? Crazy. Yes, it is a weeded bourbon. It's, um, like, 18 to 20 bucks, I think. Um, and it's called Johnny Fitzgerald Larceny. And it's, you know, a, a very affordable. It's everywhere. It's a mass market bourbon for sure. So, you know, if that turns you off, it turns you off. But as far as the taste, I was, you know, I thought it was pretty solid. Yeah. Well, it's good to know. Yeah. You make me angry. <laughs> uh, anything else before we cut it off? No, I think I'm good. Yeah, I think it's time for an old-fashioned, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, it is. Uh, Matthew Panzerino, 
Thank you so much for coming back on the show. People can read your work on a daily basis at uh, TechCrunch, of course, and on uh, the Twitter, you are at Panzer. Is that correct? P-A-N-Z-E-R. Yes, sir. Anything else you want to promote? Anything else? Anything coming up? No. No. I get enough of that. You're not a self-promotional type of guy. <laughs> not, not so much. <laughs> well, I appreciate the time. Excellent episode. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you, sir. <laughs>